Good morning, and welcome to a brand new episode of Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Mythgard Institute. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and I'm here to welcome you to yet another wonderful episode of this show, where you get to tune in and listen to us talk about Roak the Raven, who's really the central figure of this entire movie trilogy, and the only thing Corey really wants to talk about. That's right. Not, That's right, yeah. Not it's... really. There's a couple other talking animals that we'll get to see who probably won't talk on screen. <laughs> I know it's I know it's a little uncommon for the for the primary protagonist of a story only to be revealed in film three, but I think we're going to break that mold this time yeah, around. I agree. You know, Jackson Jackson does you know create you know does different things. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So so that's what this podcast is all about, especially today. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah, absolutely. Today we will be talking about <laughs> today. Our our focus is the siege, comma Erebor view. So in other words, we're going to be talking about the siege of Erebor from the point of view of the dwarves, and of course that will indeed probably include Roak the Raven, or at least our discussion will. He probably won't even show up in the film. So let's get started. My co-hosts are with me as always: the Tolkien professor Corey Olson and Trish Lambert. Good morning. Oh, we need a we need a fanfare of. Of, of horns after the Tolkien professor Corey Olson. <laughs> and then what are we going to play after? Uh, I don't know about that. What are we going to play oh, after your know. introduction? Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, so, to, so apparently the other the other thing that you get um, when you tune into Riddles in the Dark is you get um, uh, confessions, secret confessions. Yes. Uh, Trish, confessions apparently. I have well. I mentioned this a few episodes ago that I had a confession to make, but actually, I then shut up about it because this is the right spot to make this confession, and this is another reason why the wah 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 is probably a good good thing for me. I want to confess. I mean, truthfully, I should probably just shut up from now to the end of Riddles in the Dark because when I read The Hobbit, and I'm not talking about just the first time, but for many times, probably to tell you the truth, right up until the time I took the story of The Hobbit course with the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. Um, <laughs> I lost interest at the time that they made it to Lake Town. So from the barrels out of bonds on, I just didn't have anywhere near the enthusiasm for this story as I did for the early part. Huh. Having now become the Tolkien scholar that I am, I think I know why. Well, I mean, because, you know, it changes tone, obviously. Yes. Yes. And that is why, because I read it as a fairy tale. I loved mm -hmm. it as a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And when it turned into a military fantasy, which is basically what it becomes after this point, I just didn't have the verb for it, you know, that I had before. And so I want, my confession is more around the fact that I don't know this part of the story as well as I know the others. Because I've always, even though I've read it and I've listened to it, I kind of haven't paid the attention to the story that I paid to earlier. Now, I know Corey will make up that deficit, and I'll learn a lot during the rest of this year <laughs> about this part of the book. But, I mean, I, and I'm actually saying this because there may be others out there that sort of have had that same experience. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really at that moment. I mean, Chapter 10 is, I believe, the the time when that shift really, I mean, that's certainly the, the place that I would point to for, for where the shift really happens. Um, and then it particularly accelerates um you know cha chapter 10 the the you know the uh, warm welcome when they arrive in lake town is really the beginning of the latter of the latter right. section of the book right. and then the death of the dragon and what comes after 
is then when you know what comes after then is in is in really f full flow and church i think the way that you said it is a really good way to think about it you know sometimes people will just talk as if you know tolkien just kind of loses focus or something you know like this started off as a children's book and then it kind of gets carried away as it as it moves on i i don't think that's exactly right you know i i sometimes i've talked about it like in my, in my book i was sort of suggesting that um we can see him sort of deliberately bringing children into into this sort of more serious world that the moment that uh, that i mentioned in my book and that really stands out to me so much is uh, the moment at the end of the fire and water chapter when lake town has been destroyed and he pauses to emphasize the number of people who died the uh, you know the, the 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 vision of the the people of lake town um, cold and 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 shivering on the shore with nowhere to stay and the fact that they're that a lot of them are going to die in the winter to come because they don't have proper shelter and um, you know their homes have been destroyed and they have nowhere to go um, th you know that those 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 kinds of things are things that one would really sort of expect to be skipped in a children's story um, and he not only doesn't skip them he it goes out of his way to really draw attention to it. Um, so th that to me is just one of the most obvious moments that uh, we are really in a different place than we were, say, in chapter one of the book. But Trish, I do think that it's a really uh, constructive way to think about it um, and to, to kind of understand why this changes so much, you know, I, that I think that there is more to it than just Tolkien wanted to bring the 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 you know the the juvenile readers along you know that he lost focus, but rather that what we see is him putting together two of his very favorite things you know in writing this story, um, he was he 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 included uh, both of the favorite kind of uh, both of his own favorite kinds of story that is the first half of it is a fairy tale and the second half of it is like a Norse epic. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, uh, you know, so if you read the Volsunga saga, you know, if you read stories from the Edda, you will see, like, that is the, this kind of thing, you know, where we get, uh, um, you know, conflicts among people who should be allies and, like, misunderstandings and, like, desires for vengeance upon each other and, uh, uh, and, and uh, desperate stands by in, almost impossibly outnumbered uh, small groups of loyal people who are trying to defend the hall. Uh, I mean, this is all, this is very standard, uh, you know, Germanic epic stuff. And that's suddenly the world that we're in there. Um, so uh, so I, I, would, I, would, I would credit you in, 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 your, uh, in your dislike of the latter part of, of, of the Hobbitrish, I would, I, would, I would credit you for great literary sensitivity uh, to the shifting of the genre that Tolkien is using there. See, this is uh, the thing I like about you. You can always turn it to something positive. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah, you're not a jerk. You're just literally sensitive. Lit literarily. <laughs> I don't know what that word yeah. is. 
I, I yeah. actually, uh, Trish, I have the opposite reaction. This is where I start liking the book a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Well, and but see, you like Game of Thrones, and I don't like Game of Thrones. Ah, for that yes. reason. It's a military fantasy. You know, I just don't like military. When I read the first book, it's like, I just don't like military fantasy. And I never have. I mean, it's just, it's not because of that particular story. I've just never been a big fan. And there's a lot out there. You know, there's a lot of sort of feudal you know, where Marlboro's was kind of like, if I'm saying that right, yes. it was like that, yes. you know, I mean, I just, and I learned kind of early on, it's just not my favorite cup of tea. And I, and, but it took me a while to understand why in the Hobbit that was. And I guess for years and years and years, I hadn't really thought about the fact that it shifts. I mean, it so obviously shifts in tone, but I never had thought about that, you know, with any great degree. So anyway, so, you know, so I will say I'm not as, you know, you're not going to hear me getting down into picky little details. Like sometimes I do with the other parts of the book, <laughs> I, I don't know those details, but I will by the end of Riddles in the Dark, I'm sure. Yeah, it's um, it, yeah. I mean, the, I I do think it's a really important thing to draw attention to, and because this is really this is really what we're going to be focusing on now. We're going to be focusing on the part where, you know, for the next few shows, we want to be looking at the siege of the Lonely Mountain. We want to be looking at this um this moment, which is. A sort of a complicated standoff in the book. It takes in the book um, not that much time because in the book it's relatively simple. We have three poles to this standoff. Um, we have the Elven King, we have Bard, and we have Thorin. And the Elven King and Bard appear to be, you know, completely allied with each other. Um, and uh, and to have no conflict of interest uh, between the two of them, as we've talked about uh, several times, as indeed it was one of the one of the first things I was thinking after uh, seeing um, the Desolation of Smaug for the first time, was how much more complicated the Siege of the Lonely Mountain is going to be um, from a political standpoint, um, because of the of the way in which each of those three poles uh, of the situation has been greatly complicated in the way that um, in the way that Tolkien constructs it. Um, but I'm, today we're focusing on the dwarves, so we're going to do them one at a time. And I would I would emphasize in the book the the dwarves' perspective on the on the siege is. I would say there are two major factors that I would draw attention to um, that I think are of primary importance to the book. The first is, this is the first moment when Thorin really comes into his own as king. Book, chapter 10 is the first time we get glimpses of that. That's the first time we get the, I am Thorin, son of France, son of Thor, king under the mountain, I return business. And, um, you know, when we, when we are encouraged now to think of Thorin as a lost heir returning to his kingdom, we always knew that that was the case from chapter one, but that wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis was a treasure hunt. Now it is the return of the king. Um, so that, that's, that, that's been true, but we really see Thorin coming into his own. His whole attitude changes. He ceases to be one of the, one of the sort of comical and cowering dwarves, um, and he begins to sort of take command more, to assert himself more, and very rapidly to assert himself way too much. Um, and begin to go over the edge as he hunts for the Arkenstone. Um, but I, the, the other thing that I would uh, that I would emphasize is 
the position that the dwarves are in, um, and this is what, what I think is especially relevant to the film, because of course, as we know, the Return of the King element has been highly emphasized in the Hobbit films from the beginning. So it's, uh, and also the, that moment, uh, the, which I've mentioned before, the moment when Thorin enters Erebor for the first time, you know, and Thorin and Balin have that, have that, you know, teary moment uh, upon re-entering Erebor, um, that's already happened. So that essentially, that moment uh, in the film sort of recalled the moment when they finally go down into the horde for the first time and they're looking at treasures that they've seen before and they're they're stuffing their pockets it's still sort of comical in some ways um, but they're also but it's also not as purely comical as it was before um, so again to some extent we've already had that in the second film um, but the dynamic that results that is Thorne claiming his kingdom and then going out first to uh, protect themselves from what they assume is still going to be the return of the dragon um, they are they, they have no idea they, remember they sit in the dark dragon tunnel that is the tunnel leading up to the secret door they sit there for a long time um, Smaug has been dead uh, for some time when they finally emerge from the lonely mountain but they still don't know that he's dead so that the, 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 the first issue is that they have no idea. Now, that I assume is going to be different in the film um, because we see, you know, Bilbo at least watching Smaug fly off to Lake Town, um, and Lake Town appears to be visible from there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one wonders, I, I, I would kind of assume that they would actually see him fall or might see they, him fall. They go get their lawn chairs and watch the fireworks, right? Well, yeah, it, it, it certainly at least opens up that possibility. Right. Um, so, I, I basically so that's 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 my first question. My first question is, um, uh, and Trish, I see it was your first question too. Will they see the dragon die? Are are we going to get any of that element of uncertainty? Because of course, in the book, this is uh, this is an important element. I would say almost a crucial element because it is the element that introduces the pivotal role of Rolock the Raven. Um, that, that is, it is from Roak the Raven, of course, that they learn the tidings that Smaug is dead. Um, and had he not told them, they wouldn't know. So um, do you guys think we're going to get a, uh, a, a sort of the, that kind of dr dramatic irony? Tolkien made use of the dramatic irony. I, that is, I would remind you, I've reminded everybody of this several times, but uh, this is, this is, Tolkien made the proactive choice for dramatic irony rather than suspense um, by switching the order of the chapters. Originally, the, uh, the dwarves, uh, the not at home chapter was prior to the fire and water chapter. Um, so when the dwarves were down there in the dark, uh, thinking Smaug might return any minute, the readers too thought perhaps Smaug would return any minute. So he was going in his initial reading for suspense. You know, as they as they travel through and emerge from the gate, you know, they don't know if Smaug is going to come any second and the reader doesn't know if Smaug is going to come any second. Um, that, was, that was how he did it first. And then after that, when they're up, after they've met the Raven, um, you know, or rather, after they've gone up to the to the to the to the watchtower on Ravenhill, then that's when originally he cut back to Lake Down and said, "Well, you you probably would want to know what happened to the dragon, so I'll tell you." Um, 
but then he decided he made the, the decision the decision to swamp them um, and that choice as i said is one for irony over suspense so he lost the suspense of that chapter he, he deliberately opted out of that suspense and instead had them thinking and fearing and wondering and saying things which the readers know the answer to and and which they you know so then now we see that whole scene, the, the scene in particular, uh, you know, of them around in the horde with the treasure in a very different light, because we know the dragon's dead, even though they don't. Um, so, where is Jackson going to go with this? Are we going to get any of those scenes of dramatic irony? Are we going to, will they be in ignorance of the death of the dragon? Um, and what seems to me a rather crucial follow-up um, question to that is, if so, how do they find out? If not from a raven, then how? Um, so what do you guys think? It just doesn't seem like they would just turn around and walk back into the mountain again. You know, well, there goes the dragon. Let's go back to the forges. I, it just seems like at least some of them, maybe not all of them, Thorin may go back in because he's getting the grip of the gold, but some of them, Bilbo and maybe a couple others, seems like they would stay out there and kind of try to watch and try to figure out what's going to happen so that they would see the, you know, the fiery ball fall from the sky into the lake. I, I, so I'm thinking they probably do see it happen. What do you think, Dave? Huh. That's an interesting point. I was, I was... I was originally I was thinking like oh of course they'll do the the Raven House would they do it but yeah that's yeah that's a good point they're 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 kind of already watching and I and I guess I don't know to what extent uh, how well they can kind of see what's going on from where they are but it looks like it's it looks like probably they're I mean Smaug's pretty big in the film right like I think they'll be able to tell when he's flying around and then when he plummets to the maybe they won't be able to see mm -hmm. the arrow flying through the air and hitting him but I think they'll be able to tell when he plummets into the lake and it's and yeah it would look really odd if they were if they just turned around and walked back in like oh all right well not our problem right, yeah. anymore well we got we got rid of him that's right, that's right. yeah exactly. good job yeah. good job guys <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I, David Mosley makes a great point um, that it's not possible to opt for suspense. Of course, you know that that choice that Tolkien was making when he when he wrote the book. Um, obviously, the suspense option is off the table for the film uh, because everybody knows the dragon is going to die in Lake Town. Um, so uh, even if that scene hadn't been depicted yet, we would know that. Uh, you know, because uh, millions and millions of people have read the book, so um, uh, th that is that is obviously something. Plus, to, uh, plus, he'll probably put it in the same order as the book in the movie. In other words, we'll have the the dragon's attack, like we've put it in the order of our shows. In fact, you know, mm -hmm. the dragon's attack on Lake Town, and then we cut to Erebor. David also says, surely they wouldn't just be standing there; wouldn't they be doing something? But I could see Bilbo and maybe one or like Balin, maybe standing in horror, like. They can't do anything because they're just paralyzed with, oh, my God, what have we done? You know, Bilbo's last words in the second movie. I could see there being maybe a faction that stays out and watches and a faction that goes back in. Um, but it does make sense that I think, especially Bilbo, maybe transfixed with horror and not able to do anything else but kind of watch the thing unfold from the distance. I don't know. Yes, yes. Well, and Kay and uh, both, uh, both Kay Ben Everham and Kate Neppel have pointed out that the division of the of the of the dwarf party here becomes very relevant because um, even if 
obviously Bilbo cares about the prospective destruction of Lake Town. Um, you know, from his final words there in the film. Um, what That's have right. we Thorin's, done? Thorin's heirs are in Lake Town. That's true. Yes, I guess he exactly. Has like a interest in what goes Both on of Thorin's heirs are in Lake Town. Yeah. So if they see Lake Town go up in a ball of flame, um, they're obviously they they they're invested in this uh, in a way in which they weren't invested in it in the mm-hmm. film. Not or in in the book. Not not that we're given to understand in the book that they don't care uh, about at all about the destruction of Lake Town. Though Thorin. Um, well, I'll come back to that too. I was going to say, you know, Thorn Thorn seems pretty blasé about it when they come to the gate, but that I think reflects a different issue, and we'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but st- staying on the death of the dragon thing, um, I uh, I do think that. I mean, it's hard. Are any of them going to go back? Are Are we going to get anything proactive from them? Are we going to get them, um, you know, actively? searching down I mean, are they are they going to send somebody to try to find out what happened and see if uh, you know if, if the other dwarves are still alive um, it, it's hard to imagine them not doing that actually um, if they can see the dragon fall and and uh, of course I'll be happy about that but it's gonna be it's gonna be a mixed it's gonna be a mixed bag and and you know that itself is really a fascinating just by this one thing, by making Lake Town visible from the mountain, um, I, I at least I believe it's visible. Kind of pausing here when be. I say that. When um, he flew off, it seemed like we could see Lake Town in the distance, didn't it? it? That's what I think. Yeah, um, but um, but anyway, the in the book, it was divided. I mean, remember again, Rolock the Raven says that he brings <laughs> tidings of joy, but not all of joy. Right, he 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 brings good news and bad news. Um, the good news that he brings is the death of the dragon. The bad news that he brings is the marching of the elven host and the combined army of Lake Town and and uh, and elven, uh, you know, and, and the elves of the wood, um, that are marching up on the lonely mountain. Um, the f- just by um, by making Lake Town visible from the mountain, they've changed that situation, and certainly. By leaving Fuey and Kiwi uh, back in Lake Town, he significantly changed the nature of the mixed uh, emotions that come along with the news of the death of the dragon. Um, it's no longer just the good news is the dragon's dead. The bad news is uh, you know everybody in the area is coming you know to claim <laughs> your treasure. Um, the uh, the this now it's also hey uh, the good news is the dragon is dead and the bad news is y- your heirs might be dead also, um, so I guess well, the, you, and, you and, know, and 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 that well before there's any reason to worry about or have any kind of military threat angle to the story. Well, you know, as you're talking, I'm th- I'm now thinking, what would why would they not send someone to Lake Town? You know what I mean? Not only do you have Feeling Keeley, you've also got Glowin's brother is in Lake Town. True. You know, so you've got multiple people in the right, company right. who have yeah. family. And of course, Bifer, but he may not be awake enough to understand that Bofer's in Lake Town. Um, but still, what would keep them from doing it? The only thing I can think of that would keep them from sending out somebody, because, you know, don't forget, I mean, it takes less than 12 hours to go between the two places, um, <laughs> is if they see the town, what appears to be the town literally burning down to its foundations. 
I mean, if from the distance they see like this huge ball of fire and it looks like the town's completely burned, right? To me, that would be they would then assume that their kinsmen are dead. I wonder, um, and not send somebody. That's the only reason I can think of they wouldn't send somebody to find out what's going on. Maybe, maybe this is going to be the um, the film, um, you know, we can do nothing moment. Sandra said, said the same thing I did. Sandy said the same thing. Remember, it doesn't take long to get from there yeah. to Lake Town. <laughs> <laughs> right. Seriously, what's the downside in sending somebody? You can be down there and back in time for dinner, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Corey, do you think do you, do you think this is going to be the the um, you know the oh they're dead we can do nothing moment in the film? <laughs> well, if so, remember that's the moment when Thorin in the book really steps up and shows one of his first glimmers of leadership in uh, the entire true. book. You know, Thorin's response is nonsense. You know, and and uh, you know the dragon shan't have all of us. Um, so it will be interesting. You know, I suspect. We're all anticipating that Thorin is going to go further over the hill, you know, that we're going to get Thorin in some sense descending into madness. And of course, this is one of the other things we want to talk about in general in today's show. But I'm thinking also we're going to get Thorin as leader. I, I think something that they, are, they have clearly set up and that I think they're going to play up a good deal more, um, they, I believe, are going to want the death of Thorin at the end, um, which I do suspect is in fact going to occur despite petitions to the contrary, um, is to, to, be, to be really tragic and not just, it's tragic in the, in the book, but you know, if it were not for his, the deathbed scene, if it were not for his final words with Bilbo, it would seem less, there's, it's, it's just as well. You know, I mean, there's justice in the death of Thorin. Um, Thorin has not acted like a king. You know, he there's a there's a way in which, in his actions at the gate, Thorin um, sort of yields the kind of high ground. You know, yields even in 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 one sense, like his moral right to rule. Um, Think of the way that, that his his sharp practice with the treasure, um, his his attempt to 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 reclaim the Arkenstone without fulfilling his part of the bargain. Thorin is at least preparing to forswear himself. It's a big deal. He's going to break his word. Um, and, uh, you know, other things aside, that's a serious problem. You know, Thorin, is, Thorin is, is more than just kind of like not being reasonable or not being generous. Um, he's He is actually duplicitous, even treacherous, in his dealings with with Bard and the Elven King. Now he's doing so because he feels like he has been betrayed. Um, but still, uh, it's it's he covers himself with significant inglory there uh, at the at the in the pre Battle of Five Armies stuff. Yeah, what's the, the comment his, that Gandalf makes? Something about you know you're really yes that up he's not me. cutting a very fine figure as King under the mountain exactly, and that I believe to be a pointed understatement on Gandalf's part. Um, and again, we get the contrast. What Dayan does when he becomes king is exactly what you're supposed to do with treasure as a king. You give it away. That's the point. Uh, you know, you give it away and you use it to 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 reward your followers and to build goodwill. Uh, you know, that's 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 um, the proper use of treasure. Um, so, uh, so 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 yeah, so you know, there is a sense in which the death of Thorin in the book is 
not not just tragedy but justice mm-hmm. and um it's made tragic only by two things by the the final scene the final and very touching scene with bilbo and by the uh, the 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 heroism of his final charge um out of the lonely mountain which leads to his death that in itself already would have made his death would have given his tra- his death tragic significance um if you know even before it's amplified by his deathbed um, what what sounds almost like a deathbed conversion um However, in the film, I expect that tragic element to be really built up. I do not think that what we're going to see in Thorin in the film is going to be simply like a one-way street towards Gaga land, you know, as he goes like further and further into whatever he's doing. Um, I think that we're going to get, you know, so Dave, it's funny that you should mention that, uh, uh, you know, um, that we can do nothing moment, which leads to Thorin's great moment one of one of his greatest moments of leadership because that that actually is kind of what i expect out of thorin i expect thorin to i mean i think we are going to get some of those uh uh moments of sort of encroaching madness out of him but i think we're also going to get um we're also going to get more um more good leadership from him i think that we're we're going we as 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 an audience are going to see Thorin's death as a horribly sad and tragic loss. Right. Sorry. Yeah. My cat just bit me. (laughs) 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 She's annoyed that I'm not paying attention to her. That's not how animals in Tolkien behave. I know. They're much more reasonable than that. I don't know, cats maybe. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just want to explain why all of a sudden here Corey's talking and I go, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the... Do you think this is how the cats of Queen Baruthiel behave? Probably. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, yeah, you got to think of actually this. There's tra- cats don't have a great track record in Tolkien. Between the cats of Queen Baruthiel oh, and, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, and you go back to the Book of Lost Tales and, Ooh, and right. the... the yeah, exactly. Cats. Uh, the, the, you must the not cats. have been a cat person. No, I think not. You know, you've got who, who on the hound, and what? What was the name of the? What was oh, oh man, I'm blanking. What's the name of the king of cats? The opposite oh. number of oh who, who crap. In Book of Lost Tales, blanking. Oh Dude. no, um, he's the one who captures Baron. It's like you know, instead of being captured by right, right, right. Oh. Uh, to, to, Tivaldo to Tivildo, yes. yes. Tivildo, thanks, Dan. God, I can't. Tivildo, the Prince of Cats, yes, yes. Tivildo, thank you. I don't know why I'm completely blanking on that. Um, but um, but anyway, hey, Christopher, yeah. Christopher was... Daisy, uh, thank you very much, Christopher. Sent a and I just sent to you guys, to you and and to Dave and Corey, the YouTube um, thing. Uh, it's the last scene from the from the melting of the statue onto the end. Um, on YouTube, and I was just reviewing it, and in fact, you know, we don't actually necessarily know that Bilbo can see to Lake Town. The way that they did the, they show the dragon flying toward Lake Town. Yeah. But you don't. It's not actually an assumption that Bilbo is seeing the same scene we're seeing. So that's a question. That's a question mark, actually, whether the, whether or not they can see. Um, so we could have at least, if not actual 
you know, them having no idea where the dragon is and that he could return at any second. They might not be thinking that because they will have seen the dragon fly away and so therefore will will um, at, at the very least know the direction that he's gone and where, where he's likely going and will be able to keep a watch out for him to return. So there's not going to be the like any second the dragon could come around the corner kind of thing. But, um, but there's still could be a major factor at the beginning of the story, uh, at the beginning of the film story, from the Lonely Mountain point of view, could be the, oh my gosh, what is happening in Lake Town? We've got to go and find out. Not because they saw it burn. Right, um, right. But so they, they was, knew he was going there. Didn't he say as he says, I'm, you know, something, didn't he like yes. threaten that he was off to Lake Town to destroy it or something like that? Before yes, he yes, he did. And Bilbo's is clearly uh, operating under that belief. Um, Yes, yes. Um, so I do think that, um, yeah, I, I, so, so I do think, therefore, that a significant focus of the story could be not just, oh my gosh, Lake Town has been destroyed, we have to go and see if, you know, if our friends are, are, are okay, um, but rather to find out what happened. You know, uh, did he just destroy the town? What, so, so basically the dwarves could still be in doubt as to whether or not Smaug is alive. They might be expecting him to return from the burned-out husk of Lake Town any, right. any minute. And actually, um, Sandra Hall says that, you know, which actually kind of leads us to one of the other questions we were going to ask, is what are they going to be doing? You know, what are they going to be doing before the, the other uh, armies of men and elves show up? And, you know, Sandra does say, if, if they don't know for sure, they know he's going to Lake Town, but they don't know what's happened, they still assume he's coming back. So what they could be doing is fortifying like they're doing in the book, right? Right, right, yes. Um Though, of course, you know, obviously in the book, the fortifications that they do of the dragon or, or they do of the mountain are not really intempted, uh, are intended oh, right. to be anti-dragon measures. Because Roak, Because Roak the Raven has already told them, you know, so <laughs> it's, it is it is anti-invading army uh, measures that they take. Okay, okay, okay. We have to, let's just talk, let's just talk about the raven in the room, okay? Okay, okay. All right. So I personally don't think Jackson seems to have been very uh, consistent with regard to non-talking animals. The only exception being, you know, uh, Radagast seems to be the only one that understands bird. And that seems like that's kind of what he's done in all the movies. We don't have the threat playing, you know, any kind of fa fancy thing. We haven't seen Hyde nor Hare speak, to, so to speak, of a raven. So I'm thinking he's probably not going to have, unless we have ravens, you know, doing uh, raven charades or something. But, but... <laughs> He's got an answer. <laughs> I do have an answer. The different, yes, it's true that he's been very consistent that we have not gotten talking animals. We've not had conversations with eagles. We have not had conversations. Right. You know, we've not even overheard uh, the the cruel and violent language of the wolves. Um, all true, but ravens actually talk in the real world. Ravens can speak, not in conversations like Roak the Raven manages. Um, Real ravens don't say things like, I will not say whether I consider this this council good. You know, like that's they don't they don't do that. I'm a descendant of ravens that always advise the kings of the mountain. Right. See, I do remember right. that part of the show of the book. I, I, I absolutely love it when Roak like is basically reserving comment, uh, you know, uh, sort of broadly hinting to Thorin that he thinks that, like, the course that he's taking is really not a great idea, but he's too polite to say so explicitly until finally, at the end, 
you know, he's like, I do not call this council. I'm, 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 I'm just going to cut to the chase here and tell you that I think what you're doing is bad, <laughs> which makes Roach the only counselor who, in fact, does so. Uh, you know, that none of the other dwarves, even Balin, say to him, you know, Thorin, you're off the deep end, even though we get, you know, Bomber and Bilbo commiserating um, at the gate. Uh, nevertheless, you know, in uh, at the beginning of the, the the Thief in the Dark chapter, but none of the other dwarves will oppose him. But Roach will call a spade a spade by golly and tell him that what he what he's doing is dumb. Um, anyway, no, no, real ravens don't do that, but they can speak. That ravens like parrots can 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 repeat human speech. Um, therefore. They shout Therefore, things like they shout things like Jon Snow. Exactly. They could say, slog dead, Urk, invasion, elves, Urk. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would it would take a lot of training, I suppose, to get to get to get uh, to get the Raven to say that. Um, but uh, though, Dave, you have hit upon uh, precisely one of the reasons why I wonder if they wouldn't do this, uh, because it is going to look very Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. If we get raven messengers who are carrying letters uh, and speaking in single word phrases and stuff, um, it's going to sound very, I mean, it's, it's ironic, of course. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it seems rather unjust that somebody doing a film adaptation of The Hobbit need be worried about being derivative, you know, having the story appear derivative of Game of Thrones, um, but yet, I, I think that would actually be a pretty serious concern. That's such a prominent part of the Game of Thrones, or it's it's and it, such a recurring element of the Game of Thrones yeah, story. Yeah, and it's in the it's in the the public conscious, you know, right now. Yeah, exactly. Now, you know, I wonder. Still, uh, he could course, go. He, Jackson could go with a bird that people have forgotten about now, which, like an owl, say. <laughs> Joking. No, that'll be Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. That's what I said. People have forgotten about Harry Potter now, so you could use owls. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, no, 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 no. But, but, yeah. So, I, I don't, I, 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 I haven't given up on Roach, by golly. I, I still want to see Roach. If I don't even, if I don't at least get a cameo appearance of a raven, I'm gonna be upset. I gotta tell you, I don't mind. Like, I, I, you're gonna throw. I, I don't mind saying, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be mad. Is the the you're gonna throw film a fit in the theater? Points in my book. I won't throw a fit. I'll, I'll control myself. But uh, but it will definitely it will definitely affect my Rotten Tomatoes vote if there is not at least a cameo <laughs> appearance of a uh, of 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 you know. Like we at least got a thrush, okay? I mean, we didn't we we didn't get a special and magical breed of thrush, maybe, but we at least got a thrush, okay? You know, it was it was like so just as just as uh, Jackson at least had the decency of giving me a thrush beating a snail on a stone next to the secret door, um, so too he could give me a raven on Raven Hill. Is that so much to ask? I don't think that's so much to ask. I don't know. It sounds like a lot but. to ask. No, no, no way. Come on. This is Well, you know, and I have yeah. actually – well, I've toyed with the idea, too, that a thrush could be the bearer of – you know, somehow the bearer of time. I mean, we have actually had a thrush, so, you know, of course it hasn't talked, but it could maybe – maybe it'll do Morse code with the snail, you know, tap, tap a snail. <laughs> it's conceivable. 
<laughs> Wait, who knows Morse code here? Oh, dragon dead. Elves and men coming. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Yeah, I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, back to Thorin, though. Um, Sandra makes a really good point um, that uh, uh, in the film, it's it's one of the effects of the whole golden statue sequence at the end of the Desolation of Smaug. Um, we can already see, I'm not really going out on a limb when I say that I think uh, Jackson is going to emphasize uh, Thorin's leadership and make his death and the loss of him as future king and future leader of the dwarves. I get not, not just a loss in the sense of we have something invested in him and we've been spending all three of these films following him along into exile at the very beginning of the film and seeing him never forgiving and never forgetting at the forge and, and then you know the long journey back and how this obviously means so much more to him than it does to everybody else. And um, so there's going to be an element where it's going to be a tragedy just because of the, you know, um, the unfortunate, like, uh, you know, anticlimax of it all, right? You know, I've returned to the kingdom, and then he dies. You know, so um, th that will be that will already be tragic on that level. But but further, even to say, you know, to to say like this guy could have been, you know, what would have happened had he lived? You know, what could he have accomplished had he lived? You know, what, how how much could it have meant to the dwarves and and uh, and 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 to the king? Not just to reestablish the kingdom, um, but um, Anyway, so I, I think that uh, I'm not going out on a limb and saying that I think we're going to get more of that. We're going to get more good leadership from Thorin um, so that we can recognize, uh, really recognize uh, his death, not only as personally sad, but as a loss to the kingdom. And Sandra's right that Jackson was already going there at the end of film two. Um, what we were seeing, it was in fact a balance at the end of film two, a balance between Thorin losing it a little bit. I mean, we got the moment, his confrontation with Bilbo when he draws his sword on Bilbo. And then we see, but then we get the Golden King sequence, which I still take to be a very positive sequence for Thorin. A moment where Thorin is even, it's even in, in, in a sense, a sacrificial moment um, from Thorin from Thorin, not only of establishing himself as king, but the way, the, the sort of, the turnabout of that um, at the very end of the, of the, of the golden statue sequence, um, what appears to be Thorin kind of declaring himself, right? Now there is, there, the king of the dwarves has returned, right? See, there's this huge golden statue in the, in the throne room, which, uh, you know, sort of embodies the return of the king of the dwarves there, to, but it, but it's just a booby trap, right? You know, he's not actually just declaring himself. He's not setting himself up as, uh, you know, the golden king. Um, he's not just focused on the treasure. In fact, he's willing to sacrifice uh, the 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 not only the gold, um, but the the statue itself. You know, you've got to think that that mold didn't get built in a day. Um, you know, I mean, that was a big deal, but rather than keep it, he's, he's put it to this unorthodox use uh, in order to trap the dragon, you know, in order to try to kill Smaug. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's, it's in a sense, I think it's, it, it, it's in a sense, a kind of humble move on his part. So it's great. I think that that's, that that's all really interesting, but 
um, I think we're going to get more of that. But but so I, I I suspect we're going to get more of both. We're going to get more of him going off the edge, but we're also going to get more of him as uh, as good leader as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it again, seems to me also. Oh, sorry. I mean, no, I was just, I just going to say, and also remember the fact that, like, during the barrel ride, we had those sequence, like that sequence of him saving Legolas's life and Legolas saving his life. You know, so and I, I looking forward from there, um, I think we're, we're going to clearly get more than, you know, Thorin as as mad, um, you know, sort of rampager against those whom he perceives to be wronging him. Well, we do know that he has a fixation on the Arkenstone. The movie has yes. created that, yes. and so that you know, when I would imagine that that's going to be one of the things that's going to be uppermost in his mind. It might even trump caring about what the drag is doing to Lake Town. You know, must find Arkenstone, must get Arkenstone. I wonder if he's going to continue. Uh, you know, have another um, uh, confrontation with Bilbo during this this portion, the pre siege portion. I, I would think almost certainly. But remember, a, a crucial, crucial thing here. I would, I would actually, I would, I would quibble with the word fixation. In the book, he has a fixation, right? He is fixated on the Arkenstone for no other reason than that he values it, than it has, um, to put it blandly, a great sentimental value to him. Um, it is worth more to Thorin than a river of gold, we are told in the book. He is simply fixate, fixated on it in the book. In the film... He is focused on it, but it is not mere fixation. It has practical value. Mm. The whole strategy was to get the Arkenstone because the holder of the Arkenstone has the power to command the loyalty of all the dwarves. So if he can get the Arkenstone... Remember, that's one of the major differences between the books and the film as far as Thorin and the, the Lonely Mountain plot is concerned. The major difference is that in the film, Thorin has a plan which is a rational plan and makes sense. Thorin in the book does not have a rational plan about what to do when he gets to the Lonely Mountain. Um, the plan, it's never been spelled out in the film, but it appears that his strategy was get to the Lonely Mountain. They, they, they need to bring a burglar with them because they're going to go to the Lonely Mountain. The burglar is going to sneak into the mountain, find and steal the Arkenstone while the dragon sleeps. Then presumably they're going to do, I don't know how one uses the Arkenstone. Is it like, can he use the Arkenstone to send up like a dwarf signal to the clouds to summon them? I don't know. Um, we don't really have any clear sense of that. Is he going to have to then take it and bring it to other dwarves in order to say like, hold it up in front of them and say, I am wielding the Arkenstone and I command your loyalty. Now follow me. And we're going to, so that he's going to rally all the dwarves from everywhere to come and attack the dragon. Is, was, was that the plan? That seems to be the plan. Uh, again, following up on that scene at the beginning of, of uh, uh, an unexpected journey, um, when Thorin returns from the council of the dwarves and tells everybody that they won't come. Right. Um, well, he's uh, he's so so. The plan is we're going to make them come. That's as far as as far as I can put it together. That seems to be their plan, their whole their whole strategy in going to the mountain. That means that yes, although yes, he is focused on the Arkenstone. It is not a mere fixation. It is not a mere irrational obsession on Thorin's part, which it is in the book. In the film, his desire to have the Arkenstone 
um, is very practical. And therefore, if he suspects Bilbo of withholding it, Bilbo has betrayed Thorin and the dwarves in a very concrete way. Not just someone is withholding from me the treasure that I desire. That's also true. That's, you know, that's, again, that's where it is in the book. Thorin has promised terrible punishment uh, to be heaped upon anyone who withholds the Arkenstone from him. But that's just because that he really wants it. You know, uh, uh, he likes it very much. And again, it's just totally like, it is, it is, it is my right as king to have the treasure of my of my fathers. Um, now, if Bilbo withholds the Arkenstone from Thorin, um, if we get a similar sequence where days pass by, I don't expect days to pass by. Days haven't even passed by since they were at Bjorn's house for crying out loud. But um, uh, I guess they have, but not many. Uh, anyway. Um, but assuming we get a significant passage of time in which Thorin is saying, I must have the Arkenstone, it is urgent, and Bilbo has it in his sweaty pocket and refuses to, in, you know, and hides that and conceals the fact, um, if, that, uh, if that happens in the film, it's going to be treason already. Because, and it's going to be hard because Thorin is not going to be just saying, Give me the Arkenstone. I want it. I like it very much, and I really want to have it. That, that's and I'm making him sound whinier than he comes off in the books. But it's that's essentially, you know, it's one of the reasons why Thorin gets so unsympathetic there, and that pushes Bilbo over the edge. What makes Bilbo decide he's going to bring it to the? Is you know he's like, you know, this this has got to end. Thorin is going off the deep end here. In the film, if he's obsessed about getting the Arkenstone, it's because he wants to summon the other dwarves. Now, I can see Bilbo still withholding it because he wants to prevent war. Um, I could see him rationalizing this and saying, if I hand over the Arkenstone, he's going to summon the dwarves, and the dwarves are going to come, and there's going to be this huge war between the dwarves and the elves and men. Um, uh, and therefore, Bilbo, you know making a, a plan on his own. But it's not just a, because of the role they've given the Arkenstone in the film. It's no longer just going to be a question of Thorin getting obsessed about treasure with the Arkenstone as the primary symbol of his treasure that he is obsessed about and Bilbo withholding it. Um, See, now that's why I use, actually I use the word fixation because of the fact that I am thinking that the Arkenstone is going to be pivotal in reflecting Thorne's descent into madness. That mm -hmm. he goes from this practical reason to have it to the more he doesn't have it, <laughs> you know, the more he can't find it and the more he's being thwarted by Bilbo, the, the more obsessed, the more crazy, the more fixated, the more irrational his reactions to not having it will become. So that it turns from being sort of this practical thing into the focus of his madness as is kind of, I guess I've been mulling this over for a while in terms of, you know, the Arkenstone does seem to have a role, you know, much like the ring is a character, the Arkenstone is a character. And I'm thinking that this could be the reflection of his kind of, you know, how, how much he goes over the deep end is, is, is a change in how he's um, uh, engaging with the Arkenstone. Does that make sense? Yes, though in its initial conception, that is in the plan as in in the initial plan as it seems to us, based on what we see, there's no reason not to give it to him. That is to say, like it's a good, it's a. Well, I don't mean it's a good plan in the sense that it's likely to work, but it's a. It, it is a. It is. It, it is not an evil plan that he has. You right. know, um, his Thorin 
having the Arkenstone and using it to reunite the dwarves seems like that would be a good thing. Um, and certainly, while the dragon is still alive, it seems like a very good idea. And uh, even, I mean, I don't even know if we could call that, a, you know, as I say, a, a, an effective strategy against the dragon, but it seems as good as anything else. Um, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's see the dwarves take vengeance on the dragon by returning it, because presumably, I mean, yes, he destroyed Erebor years ago, but all the dwarves weren't there then. Right, it was it was some of the dwarves who were there then. Let's let's bring in just like all just you know. My understanding of it is that essentially they're taking that element from the Battle of Azanulbazar in the appendices, um, where all seven of the houses of the dwarves are brought together to avenge the the death and desecration of the body of Thror, um, and so they gather all of the dwarves th from throughout all of Middle Earth to come and war against Azog, that seems to be the trajectory that they were using for Smug. That was that was Thorin's plan for Smug. And as plans go, especially from a dwarven point of view, that seems like an entirely sensible plan to say, let's bring all the dwarves in from everywhere because we have to avenge the destruction of Erebor, the destruction of, of you know, the greatest currently existing kingdom of the dwarves. Um, uh, not to mention the death of the, uh, 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 you know, the 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 loss of the Arkenstone and the destruction of the of of the kingdom and the dispersal of the of the of of the, of the house of Durin. We're going to come back, and we're going to call the dwarves together, and all of the dwarves will s assemble at the Lonely Mountain and take out the dragon. That seems fine. Where I can see, um, where I can see things going sour, Trish. The way in which I can see. Um, and again, this is the thing I emphasize is that his desire for the Arkenstone has a clear, it's not just madness. It has a clear, like he is attempting to accomplish something and he needs the Arkenstone in order to accomplish it. And the thing he's trying to accomplish is a good thing, not a bad thing. So that to me totally changes the dynamics of his, I've got to find the Arkenstone. I've got to find the Arkenstone. Like it's got some real urgency to it other than personal obsession. However, what I think we're what I think we're likely to see happening is that now the reason to bring all the dwarves together is very different, right? Um, when the dragon was alive, calling together all seven houses of the dwarves in order to try to wreak vengeance upon Smaug is one thing. Calling all of the houses of the dwarves together in order to fight against the elves and the men of Lake Town is a very different thing. And that is what I suspect we're going to see Bilbo working against. Um, you know, him asking, okay, wait, at this point, right now, the dragon's dead. What do you want the Arkenstone for? What do you plan to do with it exactly? Why do you want to call all of the dwarves together? This seems like it's guaranteed to uh, be, to have bad consequences. Well, and that's, kind of while you were talking that's what I was trying to come up with and I think you may have answered it at least with one possible response which is then you know I think this is another reason why I was looking at the Arkansone becoming a fixation you know related to Thorin's descent into madness because if Thorin wasn't acting erratic and weird at some point why wouldn't Bilbo just hand the Arkansone over because it's such a it was such a rational plan you know it makes sense um 
And so I was thinking, you kind of answered that in the sense of, you know, that now that the dragon's dead, there's no reason to mass the armies of the dwarves. Why would you need the Arkenstone? But even so, still, Thorin is the king under the mountain, and this is a sign of his kingship. So, you know, it still makes sense that Bilbo would just give it to him. So why would Bilbo give it to him? You know, what would be the reasons? The reason that I can think of is that Thorin's obviously gone loony, you know, and he's scared now of what Thorin might do if he does have the Arkenstone in the movie. I don't know. I mean, I because yeah, I don't know. I, well, let's review for a second. <laughs> what reason do we have to believe in Thorin's looniness? We have the moment with Bilbo, the confrontation. You know, when he draws his sword on Bilbo. Okay, but that's not like necessarily symptomatic. You know what I mean? I mean, that's not like, oh, and here's another instance like of Thorin going off the edge. Rather, yeah. Yeah. that's a particular moment of tension when he... Because in the, uh, the way that was done in the film, Thorin had reason to suspect that Bilbo was being... Uh, Thor, Bilbo was acting really shady. You know, he was refusing to answer the question in what seemed an obviously suspicious way. Um, not to say that Thorne is totally justified in threatening him with his sword at that moment, but it's not like that that moment was in, was without provocation and just an instance of like, ah, now there goes Thorne into the next stage of his madness. Um, that was, I mean, I kind of saw that as Thorne being pretty pointedly provoked. Yeah, they didn't really get very far in that conversation before the, the drag. I mean, he didn't really have to do anything major. Um, we haven't, we didn't really see any signs of it. I, I guess... <laughs> Okay, I guess, you know, my assumption is based on embarrassed wah, 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 uh, <laughs> interviews with Richard Armitage, you know, who has said that Thorne's going to go mad in movie three. So, so, and you know how we've said about listening to actors. So, yeah, uh, no, know. of course, uh, 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 my Armitage has, Armitage has grown. Yes, exactly. I, I'm much more willing to believe that. And, and again, I don't think we have no evidence uh, in film, too. We do. Um, to me, one of the moments that was even more telling than the drawing his sword on Bilbo, I, that was a, obviously a big moment, but even more telling is that moment when Balin corrects him right. you know, yes. a, a, about Bilbo's name. You know, right. um, Because that's, that, that seemed to me a much more classic example of Thorin losing perspective. Right? Not like just going crazy, but, but, but losing perspective. That seems to be the biggest potential for danger here. Um, now we have had the four, the extremely long foreshadow in the extended edition of movie one, where Thorin overhears Gandalf and Elrond talking about, and Elrond being concerned about Thorin's mental health. Right, right, right. Yes, um, and uh, after all, yeah, he has family I, history. I, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That I. Really dislike that, actually. <laughs> really dislike that. Well, and it was in the extended edition, too, so it wasn't even in the theatrical release. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, I mean, that seems like a, if it's going to be a foreshadow of what's going to happen, that seemed kind of significant to me. Yeah, I wish they'd cut it entirely. Well, that, that is to say, what, what I dislike about it is it, to me, really undermines the story to go from these events 
can put you in a position where you are forced to make these choices and under the pressure of these circumstances you may make wrong choices and so therefore to have the cho the emphasis be on the path that Thorin chooses and the you know the trajectory that he embarks upon um, which might be very understandable and it we, we might be able to sympathize with him but which would still be wrong um, and to diminish that to right. Uh, yeah. There's a there's like a congenital uh, you know like genetic string of madness in his family is to cheapen and le and lower that I think in a, the the only way in which I would not the only thing that would recover that comment from Elrond to me is if Elrond was wrong that is if it's not actually anything wrong with the family but if uh, if it's um, if 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 basically that's just Elrond being a little unjust uh, to yeah. the dwarves, yeah. um, and basically, the, or, or or even that that's just kind of code for, yeah, these dwarves often screw up in this particular way, and he's probably going to do the same and thing. Michael um, Dennis basically said something similar. Doesn't this just reflect Elrond's own own bias? You know, which I'm hoping it does. I mean, I just told Sandra Hall, if this turns out to be an important piece of conversation to the movie, I'm going to be really annoyed that it was in the extended edition and not in the <laughs> Right, because... right. And the, and the other thing I was just thinking was exactly what Kate Neville just said, that this could also be a veiled reference to the Dwarven Ring, or right. even if, if not a veiled reference, because Elrond might not know um, about the Dwarf Ring or, or right. the, and, and that they still have it. Um, I mean, it's kept a, a pretty big secret. Um, so it's conceivable that Elrond doesn't know, and that what he's pointing to is evidence for those who, who you know, know what they're looking at, evidence of the the presence of the dwarf ring. Right. That would be really interesting. Wouldn't that have been nice yeah. if they'd actually? Although I suppose you can't bring it too much into the fore, because then it would bring Bilbo's ring into question, logically. But it would be nice if he had, especially given that the Lego set had that ring under the statue. It would have been nice if they'd at least mentioned the ring. I'm, I'm not giving up on the Lego under uh, on the ring under the statue. <laughs> the, Lego under, <laughs> the Lego under the Lego under the ring. The ring under the Lego. The ring <laughs> under the Legos. Yeah, I I'm I'm uh, I think uh, yeah, um, uh, I'm not giving up on that or on Roy. Just I mean, basically, the fact that we did not get a Bjorn at Dolguldor scene, which I still assume is going right. to happen, right? Tells me that the Lego people. Uh, are not necessarily wrong about the film entirely. Remember, they correctly anticipated, you know, the Legolas rescuing them from the spider scene. That's right. Um, though in that case, as presumably with Bjorn at Del Guldur, they didn't time them correctly, presumably because they were so completely thrown off by the two films into three films thing that the, apparently there was there has been imperfect communication uh, between New Zealand and the Lego. Uh, <laughs> headquarters <laughs> over <laughs> what is in fact going to be in each film so that we have had what have amounted to Lego spoilers uh, for every single <laughs> film so far uh, which is really funny um, but anyhow uh, so yeah so I know I'm still I'm still I, 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 I think it's possible that we will look back at the ring under the statue in the Lego set as the biggest Lego spoiler of all um, <laughs> But uh, but we'll see. Um, maybe not. Um, anyhow, uh, <laughs> um, okay. 
So where where are we with Thorin then? Well, and, oh, and I also, I, you know, not to not to uh, uh, crack any whips or anything, but we are actually probably about maybe half an hour away from our hour and a half mark. Yes. You probably know best if you're looking at the yep. timing. Yeah, this is true. This is true. We're an hour and three minutes, so we should move towards the. We should move towards the. Uh, well, the, especially the since I think, and it's actually a good segue because I think we do have at least a half an hour of talk about the riddle, um, and we've talked about Thorn's madness to some extent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What will Bilbo be doing? That'll be interesting. I mean, other than being tra transfixed with horror, if he actually can see Lake Town, I, I imagine if they're fortifying, he'll be helping them fortify. Oh, he'll probably get his mithril coat during this time, right? Yes, presumably. Oh. Presumably, yeah. We should we should get the mythical coat. Um, Boy, they're really they're really last gonna comment about. Sorry, sorry, Dave. Go ahead. I was just gonna say they are really gonna have to carefully manage the Thorn Bilbo relationship with the. You know, they 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 have a lot of complicated character stuff that they got to manage. They got to manage, as you've pointed out, Corey. They they really are. They seem to be working hard to make him, make Thorn into a hero and to set up a tragic, you know, a tragic end. Yes. Uh, um, you know, which would be his end will be made all the more tragic if it looks like he actually would have been a pretty good king, not not kind right, of exactly. you know, less so in the books where really the only thing indicating he might have been a decent king is his sort of heroic charge into the battle, but but right. pretty much the rest of the trends just point to him being a jerk. But they they look like they're working hard to do that. But they've already planned the seeds of him starting to go kind of wrong. You know, giving up on getting into the mountain, uh, leaving Dor the, his his heirs behind in um, Lake Town, uh, and then he also needs to give Bilbo the mithril coat. And oh man, it's complicated. I don't know how they're going to manage all yeah. of that. Well, the giving him of the coat. Um, since we've obviously missed the moment um, when we're all just seeing you know, the fact that the dwarves all went into the treasure hall for the first time while the dragon was not only still alive but still there in the treasure hall kind of took away that moment of like, ah, oh, let's have a cheerful reunion with the treasure and like, you know, that, 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 that image of the dwarves kind of cavorting around in the treasure. Um, we didn't get that because the dragon was still there in the building when when it happened. Um, so giving Bilbo the, the the mithril coat in like an effusiveness of good spirits upon re being restored to the treasure is obviously not going to happen. Therefore, it would seem logically to be linked to the preparation for war. Yeah. Um, that when it becomes clear that the that the elves and the men of the lake are marching on. Um, on the Lonely Mountain, then Thorin is going to give. You know, they're they're going to arm themselves from the horde, and Bilbo will be given the mithril coat in that context, which should give him an even more interestingly ambiguous relationship, uh, or ambivalent relationship with the coat, because he is presumably not going to be super comfortable with the. Ah, yes, this is the coat I was given in order to fight a war against the men of Lake Town and and against the elves. Um, which, as I say, we should probably not be too very comfortable. Oh, but here's an important question. Do you think the dwarves are going to break out into another acapella version of Over the Misty Mountains? I hope so. I was thinking nice, about that too, it? yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. Here's the reason I don't know. 
the the music, the melody. Um, Howard Shore did such a great job of. I mean, I really do like the Over the Misty Mountains Cold song in film one, um, and it the melody of that song plays its role so well as a a song of the remembrance of suffering. You know. Um, you can't see them doing what they do in the film with it, which is to rewrite it into a triumphant song. Um, the triumphant lyrics given, um, you know, in, in, in the later portion of the book, could not be sung to the melody that Howard Shore wrote for the song in the first film. I, I don't think it's possible. Um, so in order to do that, we'd have to get it not only rewritten, um, but the melody would have to be different. You know, it would have to be done in a celebratory style. It would have to be a completely different song. Um, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible to do, but certainly from a, from a, from a musical standpoint, it's a much more complicated situation now. Now, in the book, don't they sing it as a way to revive Thorin's spirits? I mean, isn't he kind of like glum, and they, they, they sing the song to him to sort of bring, you know, give, put him in a better mood? Yes, yes, because he's very grim. Yes, grim, um, that's it. Grim, not but glum. It, but, it's, but it's, of course, uh, uh, you know, Bilbo particularly hates the song because it sounds much too warlike. Um you know, like yes, let's let's. But though though though, notice what they're if you look at the song, what they're, how they're cheering him up is inviting him to imagine all of the dwarves coming to Erebor and being reunited under right. you know under him, kind of like they want to do with the Arkenstone. So, give, well, Ger give, Gerald makes a point that those lyrics might fit at his deathbed. I don't remember the lyrics well enough. Maybe not. They Maybe wouldn't. They well. They could be made to do so, but I think it would be a little bit tone deaf to do so. Um, <laughs> I would. I would think they would be taken out of context. Yeah. Um, They'd have to change the lyrics. I mean, it, it, no, it, I think it, no, they, they could sing the lyrics. But they would have they they they'd have to give them a meaning that they don't have in the book. I I, I I I would think they would be, um, I would, I would, I would consider it, uh, a kind of. Well, I'll be like muttering and grumping to myself if they do that. <laughs> I guess is how I should say that, uh, because you could take those words and try to make them to mean. The words are alarming. Bilbo's reading, I mean, I agree with Bilbo's reading of, uh, of those, or is that they're, uh, the, the, the song that they sing is not only belligerent, it's also, it's also a very head-in-the-sand song. Mm. Um, and it's one which is avoiding reality. Um, uh, you know, that... Uh, the dragon is dead, the worm of dread, and ever so his foes shall fall. Um, they speak as if this is a triumphant moment for Thorin when he's accomplished nothing. He didn't kill the dragon, and yet they're sort of claiming, 
credit for the death of the dragon and claiming that all of the enemies of the king will fall just like Smaug did, I guess meaning at the hands of his allies, I, I suppose is what that means. There's a, the, the second version of the dwarf song is deeply out of touch with reality um, and very much um, a belligerent and, and warlike song. And the way that those two things... Um, sort of undermine each other um, is in my mind really, really significant. So no, I mean, I, I find the second version of the song to be sort of one of the clearest statements for how the how not only Thorin, but the rest of the dwarves um, are completely out of whack in yeah. their thinking right. about what's going on there. So right. if they take that song as is and make it into a funeral lament of Thorin, there are portions of it that could work that, that way. Work. Um, but you'd have to take them completely out of context or hope right. that nobody thought about it too carefully. Right. Um, so that's why I, I kind of... I, I can see Jackson that. doing that just because since it started, you know, the unexpected, it started at the unexpected party, it would be yeah. sort of a poetic, you know, circle. And certainly music. that music would work at a funeral. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. no questions about that. Then, then, <laughs> then you wouldn't have the melody problems. Um, that's right. <laughs> uh, certainly. Um, but uh yeah yeah um one thing i wanted to say though bef right before we get to the riddle though because it's something that uh, we haven't mentioned but i really want to the the position of the dwarves um in it, we we've, we've done a lot of like looking at their point of view and everything but we haven't done said much about their actual position in the siege um when the elves and men show up um, and the main thing that I would emphasize, um, and I, 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 this is, I believe, true in the book, um, we have to remember that although Thorin is losing perspective and not acting quite rightly, his position is very understandable, even when he rejects the, the, the people of, when he rejects Bard's, um, uh, Bard's claims he has some significant justification. The men of the lake and the elves are the aggressors. They are making, they are making motions of war against Thorin. Um, uh, if Bard were completely genuine in what he says when he first shows up, when he says, you know, we thought you were dead. We're glad to find you alive. Um, you know, we are not yet enemies. Had that been their reaction, they did not have to set up an armed camp in front of the gates of the mountain. Um, <laughs> they could have just been standing there and then, you know, come up and said, Hi, Thorin. Gosh, good to see you. Let's talk. You don't mind um, if we instead, uh, just hang out here with our army. Yeah, exactly. You know, oh, yeah, you know, oh, this army? No, I mean, we totally brought this army in case there were, like, any other armies of scavengers or, like, on the odd off chance that, like, a huge army of goblins attacks out of nowhere. But no, like, we, we're totally cool with you. They are acting as if it's a negotiation in time of war from the very beginning, even in the, even in the way they send, you know, uh, their, their embassy to the gate to talk to Thorin. It looks like the meeting of two warring parties, and they are the aggressors. They're the invaders, and Thorin is there, um, and he's built his wall, which now looks like a bloody good idea that he built the wall uh, in front of the gate, and um, and and his question, exactly the way he asks the question in the book, who are you who come armed as for war to the gates of Thorin, king under the mountain? Really good question. 
who are you? Who are you to come armed? Why have you come armed for war to the gates? Um, that that question is not answered. Yes, Bard has legitimate claims. Yes, Thorin's refusal to uh, you know return uh, with gratitude. Uh, the 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 help that he is that he was has received uh, from the men of the lake is 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 mean to use that word in its 19th century sense um, of Thorin, but you know he is totally justified to say as long as you guys have an army and are acting as if you are besieging me, I'm going to act you know on the assumption that you're my enemy here and treat you accordingly. That's not a, an unreasonable way for him to act at all. Um, and I will be interested to see. And, and then again, I, I, and, and to add further to that, as he says, he has uh, he has um, uh, he has small reason to remember the Elven King with kindness. Um, I remember when I was younger, I used to look at that line, you know, when Thorin says that about the Elven King, as 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 just a little bit petty on Thorin's part, you know, like he knows he should be grateful to the men of Lake Town, but oh, he does have an excuse to be resentful against the elves, so, um, so you know, that kind of justifies him. But it's, uh, but I, you know, more and more, I find it less petty um, that if he, if he was wondering, as of course he certainly should be. Why are these people who claimed to be my friends before now showing up armed with a host in front of my gates? Um, if he's asking himself that question, um, why have they come with people who have shown themselves to be my enemies? He has all kinds of reason to think. Uh, the, the presence of the Elven King gives him all sorts of justification to say, you know the uh, the people of Lake Town. I, I you know I, I'm grateful to them for what they did, but it looks like they're my enemy, my enemies now, and I I I better you know not be a complete simp in how I deal with them here because they're they seem to have crossed over and they're now attacking me. Um, that that does not at all seem to me like an unreasonable or irrational thing on. Uh, um, on especially the way part. they've set things up in the film. Yes, and in the film, I think they clearly they've clearly uh, emphasized that much more. Um, so, so yeah. So, and then you know, Dave. To this, we add the point that you made back at Mythmoot: um, the fact that they can also feel that they drove the dragon out, um, so that they're not just squatters in the Lonely Mountain. Um, they're not just the first, uh, the first set of scavengers to arrive at the mountain after Smaug's death, right? Which is kind of the position they're in in the book because they didn't kill the dragon. Um, they didn't do anything. They just were attacked by the dragon and then the dragon left and died. And there they were on sitting on top of the treasure already. Um, but in the films, they drove the dragon out, right? They are the new conquerors of Erebor. Um, they didn't kill him, but they, you know, of course, Thorin always had a sort of a moral right to it as, you know, by inheritance, um, you know, his kingdom, his father, but, but it's more than that. You know, he also has, in a sense, a right to Erebor and a right to the treasure by right of conquest, which Thorin in the book does not have. Remember, that's one of the arguments that Bard makes, right? By my hand was your treasure set free. By right of conquest, this treasure should belong to me. Um, the Bard in the film, even after presumably he kills the dragon, um, 
is 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 not going to be able to say that in the same way. Thorin is going to have a very different relationship with that in the film. So that's all. That's also made sort of more, more complicated. Yep. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, Sandra, thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah, uh, Sandra just uh, has a, a quick note about the song as well. Um, a piece of context that I had uh, neglected to emphasize. Sandra's pointing out that um, the the specific impetus in the book for the song was they're overhearing the singing of the elves in the camp, which sounds really cheerful and happy, like elven music always. I mean, it's 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 sometimes tragic, but it sounds beautiful. They're hearing the singing from afar, and it's make, it makes Bilbo long to be out there um, with the happy people down in the valley instead of with the grumpy people in the mountain. Um, and it's in response to hearing that that they sing, that they're like, oh, no, let's make some dwarven music. And so they sing the song for Thorin. Um, so it is it deliberately contrasted with the happy elvish music that they're hearing from the valley. Um, and that does make it sound, as, uh, as Sandra says, um, you know, much more bellicose. Um, because of that pointed contrast. So th thanks, Sandra, for reminding me of that. Um, so I think the way in which Thorin can act belligerently in the Siege of the Mountain without being unreasonable and without going over the deep end, I think that that has been expanded in the film, um, which I think also is going to tend to tend towards that end of making Thorin look more heroic and less um, less uh, like somebody who kind of gets what is coming to him at the end. All right. Trish is suspiciously silent. Yes. Oh, here I am. Well, okay. I was going, yes, right, right, but I was... Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. I was, I was, I was agreeing with you and being very, but you couldn't hear me. I was afraid your, uh, your internet had dropped there every time. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Um, but... It's unnerving that, when you're that silent. If I'm quiet, I know, if I'm quiet for five seconds, they're like, oh my God, Trish must have dropped off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, Tom Hillman asks a good question. You know, can we really say the dwarves drove him out? It seemed to me more like he suddenly realized they must have had help from Lake Town and went off to punish them. Seemed a bit odd to me. I agree, Tom. Uh, it, I think it, it would be a little bit much to say that the dwarves had defeated Smaug. But, but I actually think that you can say that. I think they did drive him out. He did seem to be... He wasn't killed by the whole bath of molten gold thing, but he was plainly discomfited by it. He didn't enjoy the process, it's pretty clear. Um, and he left and in a hurry. I, he left in a hurry. I'm kind of thinking that there was an element of rationalization on Smaug's part in the film. You know, when he's like, now I will go and I will punish your allies, ha-ha, which also conveniently means I will leave this place, which has become right. distinctly uncomfortable. Um, I think that Smaug is saving face um, in that moment as well. I think that, I think I, I, I rather, I mean, my reading of the film is that he was being driven away. Um, yep. Even if temporarily. Even if temporarily. You know, that he's, he, he's going to go regroup and uh, and uh, vent his frustrations on Lake Town and uh, sort of salve his own dignity. <laughs> Who seem much doing less that. capable of fighting back. Right, right, exactly. Well, he, he, you know, he was O for O as far as getting any dwarves. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think he was as frustrated as some of the viewers were that he completely <laughs> failed even to injure a dwarf during his uh, whole sequence there. Uh, so he's like, hey, wait, there are probably more red shirts down in Lake Town. I think I will go down there. Um, <laughs> get a little job satisfaction here in this villain business. Um, That's right. But uh, uh, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, but but Tom, I would agree to the extent that um, and Dave, this, as I recall, was the way that you made this point at MythMoot, um, that even if it cannot be truthfully and accurately said, they defeated Smaug. You know, the dwarves won and Smaug lost their confrontation. If that can't be, because their plan failed. They didn't kill him. You know, they tried to kill him and their plan failed. And now what are they going to do? I mean, you know, make another golden statue? Like, what's plan B? We don't, they don't seem to have a plan B. Um, it was kind of surprising that they came up with a plan A, to tell you the truth. And, um, uh, but, but nevertheless, it's going to be impossible for them not to feel that the, the dragon leaving the mountain is not a victory on their part. You know, and that now the, the um, Erebor is theirs. They have reclaimed Erebor and driven the dragon. Even just the fact that we get the visual scene of Smaug flying out of the front gate um, of Erebor as we, you know, that same gate that we saw so prominently at the beginning of film one, we saw him breaking down those gates and entering in, and now we see him, um, you know, flying in, uh, at the very least, discomfiture uh, out of those gates. There, there seems to be a certain amount of closure there, um, and what seems to amount to something quite like a victory of Thorin, even if it's not an actual. And, the, and uh, even if the, even if victory. deep, da even if deep down the dwarves kind of recognize, like we didn't really beat him, um, they will <laughs> still, they'll still be able to make, or they will still be able to make the case, even if it's right. not a very good case. They will still attempt to make the case when it comes time to, when they, you know, are engaging in dueling rhetoric with, um, with uh, Bard. They're gonna say, right. hey, you know. Sure, you you in killing the dragon, all you achieved was saving your town from being burned. Well, okay, you didn't stop him from burning the town to a crisp. But, <laughs> right, right. Uh, so what did you accomplish yeah, again? So, right. Yeah, you killed the dragon, <laughs> and you know, and the northern world thanks you for removing this scourge. But it, but but uh, we already had reclaimed the treasure. We didn't need your help. Exactly. For it. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it totally changes the thing. Again, you know, in in the book, Bard can say this treasure is rightfully mine. I liberated this treasure by killing the dragon. Uh, yeah, th they can say, look, we, we had claimed it. Erebor and its treasure were already ours prior to the death of the dragon. You did kill the dragon, and that was useful, and we, we, we will perhaps consider paying you as an independent contractor uh, for that service. Um, but once the dragon had fled Erebor, he wasn't our problem anymore. Um, and he, no, Smaug had already abdicated his own claim to the treasure <laughs> by departing. So, so exactly, yeah, it, it, it really changes. Um, but, but again, notice the consequence of this. Thorin's unwillingness to recognize Bard's claims is one of the clearest signals, explicitly so to Bilbo, and I think implicitly to us as readers as well, one of the clearest indicators that he is not right, you know that he's uh, that 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 he is losing his perspective, uh, and that he is falling into into you know some some serious error. Um, 
and making some really some really bad calls. In the film, he can do very similar things without looking as bad. Mm-hmm. Nothing like as bad. Um, his own moral integrity is not going to be compromised to anything like the same extent if he were to say exactly the same thing in exactly the same way. Um, so, yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking that what we might see then, as we've talked through this whole thing, when we come to see the, the dwarves at Erebor, they won't know, see, they will have assumed that the dragon has decimated Lake Town, that their kinsmen are dead, and that, and that Smaug is going to be coming back. So they will be fortifying the mountain against Smog's return. When the men show up with their kinsmen in tow, they're going to be partly amazed and thrilled and happy and partly totally irritated outraged. Be- because it'll look like they're hostages. Yeah, exactly. it'll look like they've got them as hostages. Exactly. That's kind of, I mean, I could definitely see that being sort of the flow of, of Well, I mean, again, and, and think of that there. Again, the impact of that is to justify Thorin in his actions against the men and elves. You know, again, the, the, the yep. things that make him so unsympathetic in the book could very likely be done in all in very sympathetic ways. You are holding my nephews and heirs as hostages, you scum? I mean, that's yeah, true. I'd say that too. Yeah, um, You know, that's an act of war. Now, of course, it could be complicated by the fact that, you know, Feely and Keely are, you know, openly complicit and possibly um, feeling uh, antipathy to Thorin himself. You know, there could be, as we've speculated, an open divide there. Um, but, uh, so, you know, it wouldn't be as simple as, like, Fiwi and Kiwi being paraded in chains in front of Thorin. You know, I, I assume it's going to be a little more complicated than that. Or it may be that they're not really hostages, but that Thorin jumps to that conclusion when he sees them. Right. Yes, exactly. I would think that there would be, there would be a a, a fair space for misinterpretation. Yeah, I have a feeling, I have a feeling that it's going to be, I have a feeling that it's going to be so like intentionally vague, uh, ambiguous, right? They're going to show up and say, mm-hmm. "Hey, look, mm-hmm. look what good care we're taking. You know, we've taken of your uh, your kin and heirs. See, here they are, right next to our right next to our army." <laughs> <laughs> it's right if, next if, to our if army. If they don't, if they don't, if they don't send, if they don't send the 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 dwarves along ahead, like, oh, why don't you guys head up to the mountain by yourselves, unescorted by our military, uh, with a message for Thorn? If they show up alongside the army, there's basically no way to interpret that other than. These guys, you know, as long as we're getting along and um, uh, as long as we're on good terms and getting along and friends, then, you know, everything's fine. And uh, and these guys are our honored guests. But as soon as things start going wrong, they sort of, you know, make a very smooth transition to uh, uh, hostages. So there's really no other way to interpret it. Right. Though, you know, I'm not 100 percent sure that we're going to see Fiwi and Kiwi. Um, by which, of course, I also mean to include Owen and Byford or Bofer, but um, mm-hmm. but anyway, I don't, I'm not 100 percent sure we're going to see them in the camp. I, I, I think they might go to the Lonely Mountain because I think either way could work really well if Feely and Kiwi, and especially Kiwi, become a focal point for dissent within the mountain. Yeah, that I think would serve, you know, equally well uh, a dramatic function. Mm. Um, 
and in particular, remember the number one thing that we're getting, whatever happens in Lake Town and whatever kinds of, you know, bonds are formed between Bard and the dwarves in Lake Town, you know, especially if they end up, as we were speculating last time, possibly rescuing Bard's daughter's lives and all that. Um, <clears throat> assuming, even even aside from that, the whole Kiwi Toriel thing um, is obviously going to, uh, to, to work pretty firmly against Thorne's uh, uh, decided anti-elf bias. Um, and so... If Kiwi is in the mountain and uh, uh, wanting or speaking out against, or even, I don't even know what, um, uh, I mean, could we get him sending messages or Thorin believing that Kiwi is betraying him, uh, you know, in communicating with the elves? Could we get a situation where, you know, we talked about Toriel and Legolas, um, you know, are are they going to defy um, Thranduil? Um, and one of the ways in which, one of the things, one of the issues we talked about at the time was, are we going to get them doing clandestine things? It would be very easy to imagine, given Toriel's character as we've seen it, it would be very easy to imagine Toriel, um, you know, sneaking out to communicate to the dwarves in private and say, look, you know, let's, let's, let's see if we, and, and for, for her to be like meeting up with Kiwi's on guard at the gate and Toriel sneaks up and has a conversation with him and Thorin catches Kiwi's, you know, talking to an elf over the gate and believes that he's betraying the dwarves. And I mean, mm -hmm. it would be really easy to see that kind of a scene unfolding in which there's misunderstanding on every side and, uh, uh, yeah. By the way, you realize yeah. that having Keeley and Feely et al. leave Lake Town after the dragon now preempts any need for Roak because they would be the ones bringing the word to the dwarves in Erebor, right? There will always be a need for Roak. <laughs> Plus, they could actually go not just not just reunite, but also if they feel there's unrest in Lake Town. You may have already said this because I was typing a note to Sandra and I may have missed it. Um, if they feel there's unrest and the Lake Town men are, are, are arming to come there, they're going to want to definitely come to the mountain to give Thorne that warning. Yeah. Um, uh, Kate Neville's asking, you know, will we see that this is all the dwarves' fault attitude on the part of the Probably. men of Lake Town? I, I definitely, because yeah. remember, that was Bard's whole thing. You know, the whole confrontation with Bard, you know, you have no right to enter the mountain because if you do, you're going to bring destruction down upon us and look what happened, right? Bard's uh, Bard's foreboding, his his remembrance of the prophecies, which are now no longer cheerful but ominous, uh, in the film, um, the prophecy of doom has come true, and Thorin, so Thorin, in fulfilling the prophecy, does not become a, a shiny figure of legend, but rather becomes a figure of doom and death and destruction for Lake Town, which has now been fully justified. Um, so whatever Bard may or may not feel towards uh, Feely and Kiwi, he is certainly going to be have his uh, wrath justified um, against... So that gives Thorne. them a twofold. I mean, not only can they avenge themselves on the dwarves in Erebor, but then they don't have to split the, 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 the uh, riches with them either. I mean, if they kill off Thorin and company, then they got the gold for themselves, which the people in Lake Town seem to be, you know, that seems like it would be a good rallying, you know, motivation for them. Do you think Bard's daughters are going to die? <laughs> oh, God. It's horrible thought. Oh, it's a, it's awful. What is wrong with no, you? This is, this, I don't, I don't no, think so. No, this is what, it's, 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 I, it's Kate's fault. Um, because <laughs> reminding me of that prophecy, couldn't you see this, though? 
you know, Bard as like not only uh, you know, um heir of Girion, but also as like loving and troubled single father of three, uh, you know, widower, oh, father, father of three. Oh, having lost his daughters, oh, as a, as a motivation. Exactly. Or, that, yeah. that he's, you know, he, he said, you have no right to enter the mountain because terrible destruction will come of it. Um, by the way, uh, uh, Trish, obviously, your parent is pro Roach. Sorry about that. I moved into another room and he heard me talking. He's outside, but yeah. he's one loud. I'm going to mute See, myself it's, so you can talk. He's, he's just a spokesperson for the talking birds. Rock. That's all. He's I, I totally, Rock. yeah. Rock. Uh, and, <laughs> yes, I'm in complete sympathy. Um, but anyway, um, so I, 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 as I was saying, so, so, so Bard. Um, you know, th there's this there's this prophecy, but the prophecy becomes personal for him. He said, you know, so there, there's that highly charged. You have no right to enter that mountain, and if Lake Town is destroyed and one or both of his daughters killed as a consequence of Thorin's action, he has every reason to be, you know, completely unforgiving of Thorin from then on. So, um. Yeah, I could. I mean, it's. I know it sounds awful, but I could totally see it happening. That's an interesting thought. It's a very interesting thought. Um, because okay, now I am going to crack the whip. Okay. The whip absolutely needs to be cracked. Yes, I, it's I'm time to get to the riddle. We must get to the riddle because I because we got a lot to talk about in the riddle. I mean, the riddle. Yeah, we, oh, we haven't even touched on the topic. Of You're the right. Riddle, so. Okay. 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 Um, um. All right. The riddle. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, see, I'm good. I'm really into sound effects today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Okay, so, so the riddle. Um, the riddle is about something we talked about a while back. My my sequencing was not awesome today, um, which is about Thorin summoning the the dwarves into all of the policies of the Siege of the Lonely Mountain. Come the dwarves of the Iron Hills, um, and their actual intervention. Um, which reminds me, are we going to get the dwarves of the Iron Hills expanded to, you know, the rest of the dwarves? Are we going to be led to imagine that this is like the army of, uh, of like, you know, all, all of those dwarves that said no back at the beginning of the first film, the ones that they were going to use the Arkenstone to try to command? Is 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 Dan going to be? Well, that's a good question. Representing all of them, I kind How of did wonder. they represent Diane in the beginning? Did they did they did they talk about him being kind of like a big mucky muck over a number? I don't of... recall any reference I to him remember. specifically. No. I, they mentioned I, him. Yeah. I thought they mentioned him, and I thought he just mentioned him in passing when he was reporting on the lack of success at the meeting. I don't think so. It. Oh, he didn't. Okay. Maybe I don't remember. I don't remember. Wishful thinking on my part, maybe. <laughs> uh, but anyway, okay. So, so the question is: Our riddle for this episode, riddle six, if season three is, how will Thorin summon Dayan and the dwarves of the Iron Hills? Because we should probably put up the put up the poll so people can see it. Oh right, did you? Okay, let me do that. Watch. All right. Okay. Now, I will say Corey originally put Roach. Of course. Of A, and I made Obviously. it a little bit more generalized. <laughs> right. Option A, the book answer is Roach, the wise talking raven. <laughs> Trish has sensibly rephrased my my option A to a raven or other kind of bird, I, uh, uh, but anyway, 
A is the Roach answer, clearly. Okay, so so everyone else who is pro Roach has to go with A. All right, uh, B. A subset of the dwarves will go to fetch Dan, since of course uh, it should only take them about forty-five minutes to get to the Iron Hills from the Lonely Mountain. They should have time to walk on foot, um, so they could conceivably do that. C. Dan and his people will come without summons. They just, you know, they like Let's they have heard there's a hubbub, and so they show up. Um, D, the Arkenstone will signal the loyal dwarves to their king. One of the things that is, was unclear to me in the way that Thorin talked about the Arkenstone in film two was whether or not there is in fact some kind of magic associated with it, as if they could um, actually, you know, the Arkenstone can be, has some kind of magic power, or I don't even know. I, I, I don't, like it, I'm still... Like it makes, it makes his spidey senses tingle? Right, or like something. Giants, yeah. like something's going on, you know, yes. must go to Lonely Mountain. Yes, exactly. Like, you know, there's Dan, like, I feel a great disturbance in the force. I don't know what. <laughs> I, 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 I really, I, yeah. Um, I, I have no idea the mechanism that it would actually employ. But, uh, um, but anyway, you know, the Arkansas will be used in some sense as an instrument uh, for not only just like as a symbol um, to show his authority, but as an actual mechanism for contacting them yeah, and, and, or summoning them in some way. And then E is they think of something that we didn't. So, um, so there we go. Impossible. Uh, and, and, and by the way, uh, if you, if you vote for E, uh, at least, like in today's show, you don't have to do this. Is there's not going to be a write-in option, you know, in the in the, in the official uh, uh, little ballot submission uh, process at the end. But if today you're live with us and you guess E, you should tell us in the comments what you think it's going to be. Oh, now see, I was thinking E, but now you're making me have to work. Yeah, because it's like a total cop out just to be like uh, <laughs> something else, but I don't know what. Commit. Commit. You've got to guess. You got to. You get. This is. This is. This is what we're all about here. Well, I just don't. I don't see. I mean, I just. I can't imagine how it could be. I just. I don't think a. Just because he hasn't. Unless the Raven does charades, you know. Uh, you know, fear. He fire just has foes. to carry a letter. How hard is that? Come on. <laughs> Seriously. For, Ravens for are big. They can. Oh, there are reasons they do this in, in Game of Thrones. You know. Yes. This. That's. I don't know that the subset of dwarves going, again, to distances don't mean anything in Middle-earth. I suppose that could be, that he dispatches two dwarves, say, to go let Dan know. I can't imagine them just showing up without, you know, for no reason. Like, you know, we have our battle pigs and we're here because we just thought we should be. And I don't know about the bat signal or the raven signal or whatever the Arkenstone would throw up into the sky. Or however it would, you, know, you actually had said, um, uh, how did how did you say it? You'd said it something like magically, or I forget the words, but unfortunately, um, the words you, there were too many words and I couldn't fit them all in here. <laughs> Go to meeting only allows a certain number of characters. It's kind of like Twitter, you know. So I couldn't. Right. Fit them all in. But you actually had said that it kind of magically, or or you know, yes, mystically. Yes. I think I said something like the mystic power of the Arkansas yes, or something right. like that. Yes. Uh, so I mean yeah. I, I but okay so I'm going to shut up now I'm going to try if I'm going to go with the I got to come up with a good thing so I'm going to shut up and let you guys talk and think about this. Okay. Hmm. okay. Man, I really yeah, want to people are asking if it's going to send a, a dwarf version of the bat signal. Uh that uh, that seems unlikely uh but uh um 
God, now I want to go do 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 do. I still have that one that Dave did. Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> Batman. <laughs> um, I kind of wonder if um, uh, I kind of wonder if, if I wonder if there's maybe some reason to think that it will be uh, um, C. That you know that basically the the way you could do it would be. Oh yeah, remember how you were trying to get us to help before um, uh, Thorin, and we said no. Uh, we we changed our minds, and uh, we started heading out. You know, almost immediately after you left. Although I guess I right. guess that can't be it. They can't have left immediately. Otherwise, they would have been there um, like within days or minutes. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, so. Michael Dennis um, asked a question. What if Dane puts spies on the mountain and Lake Town after refusing Thorin's summons and those spies send the message? I'm thinking that would be C because it would be strictly Dane's. Dane's yes. people see it. They bring the message back. Dane musters and goes. Exactly. The, 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 the point of C is not that they show up by coincidence or anything, but rather they show up without being summoned by Thorin. Right. Um, so <clears throat> just as well, they could hear rumors of the death of Smaug. Um, presumably not by means of Raven, but uh, by some other means, they would hear that Smaug is dead, or even hear that the elves, you know, the elves are mustering to march on the mountain and 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 come for that reason. Um, they don't have to necessarily be summoned by Thorn in order for that to occur. Now there is. Kate says, you know, there could be a dwarven version of the Watchfires of Gondor. We have not seen that. I mean, we did actually get that in in Lord of the Rings. We got that. Uh, we knew about them because I think of Weathertop, right? Didn't he explain it or did he explain it in the movie? I, may, oh, he didn't actually. So we might have something like that. We could get the beacons conceivably, something like beacons. Now um, we could have a bird in terms of like a, a messenger pigeon. I mean, he could actually. Well, that's right what the message. ravens are doing in the book. You know, they're bringing messages back and but forth. But a written message, like a written, you know. Well, exactly. That's what I've been saying. That's why I'm holding out for Roach because he doesn't have to be able to relate the all the whole message verbally. He could just fly. Oh, yeah. They could just have like a thing of a a, a raven Game of Thrones style again. A raven flies exactly. in with a note attached to his leg. And then, exactly. and 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 the general movie-going audience barely notices, and Corey screams, "Roak!" Exactly, <laughs> and he even gets a credit line. Yeah. you know, like like he's, he's like named in the credits. Yeah, Jackson yeah. gets flayed by the critics for for you know for mimicking uh, yeah. George for, Game Game of for Thrones. stealing yeah, that exactly from Game right of Thrones. Right yes. Yeah, exactly. So derivative. Yeah. Yeah. Tolkien was totally derivative of George R. R. Martin. Everybody knows that. All right, um, I'm putting my stake in the ground here. Okay. One, All because right. I don't want to have to come up with a different reason, but also out of my deep respect and affection for Corey, I'm going with A. <laughs> Thank you for your support. Um, I, I, needless to say, I feel like at this point now morally obligated to choose you have A. To go with a. Uh, yeah, I, I can't, I can't back down from my Roach support now. Um, so yeah, I am, I am, I am going to go with A. I do think, I do think we're going to get a Raven, and we're going to get. I could even see them. Well, okay. I my primary reason for voting A is just that I think we have seen time and again. Think of the number of times we have assumed they're going to depart from the book 
and yet they like go out of their way to bring in a book element yep. that we didn't expect them to bring in. Yeah, sometimes in a very subtle way, sometimes in a way we don't expect, but that yeah. that's kind of what I was to thinking too. At least too. make nods to it. Yeah. yeah. It goes yeah. it goes back to our 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 I don't know if it's our my at least. I don't know if anybody else buys this, but my sort of original principle which we we occasionally believed in and occasionally departed from, which is uh you know that when in doubt, just do the thing from the book. Maybe you change it a little bit, right. but why why go out of your way to invent a, a brand new element or story element or whatever um, or plot device? If you already have something that works pretty good in the book, it's right there in front of you. Just use that. Uh, right. Oh, 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 I thought of an E. <laughs> okay. I thought of an E, prompted by Erica Smith. Erica Smith said, what if it's a moth? And I wrote back and I said, but Gandalf is the <laughs> moth whisperer. Gandalf could actually be... <laughs> somehow uh um, instrumental no well i don't know about the moth but he could be somehow <laughs> instrumental he may send radagast or if radagast has bought the farm maybe he's got radagast bunnies yeah i can't i can't Gandalf imagine could somehow radagast be is still involved. in business at this point no i know he could somehow be involved in summoning bane and not thor yeah it's, that's an e i'm still sticking with a but i'm just saying that's that's a possible e gandalf uh, as mechanism is a viable yes, e i agree e. um Here's another counter-argument I would give, and that is a counter-argument to the position I am taking. Um, here's a pro-D argument. And Dave, I, I was thinking of it in response to what you said. You're right. Unless there is another, like, a, a really clear-cut alternative, you know, something else that really suggests itself, why not just do the book thing? But you could say, in this case, they do have a clear-cut alternative um, with the role that they have put, placed the Arkenstone in. Um, much has been made of the Arkenstone from film one when much was being made of it in ways which just kind of puzzled the heck out of us because we had no idea. Um, you, did, you know, the treatment of the Arkenstone in film one was, I think, way more puzzling to people who knew the books well than it was to people who did not know the book well. Um, yeah. But, uh, and, and it began to be revealed more in film two, but I still don't feel like I fully understand it. I don't really know whether the Arkenstone is supposed to be merely a very potent symbol in the eyes of the dwarves, or whether it actually has some kind of power, whether there's supposed to be some sort of potency associated with the with with the Arkenstone, I don't really know. So, um, if it does have that, you know, the the fact that um, you know, Dave, I forget exactly how you just worded it, but the way you worded it made me think of the Arkenstone. Like, unless it's inter unless it's intimately connected with this, you know, unless your alternative non-story thing is crucially important for the the plot in some way, then you yeah. shouldn't do it. But the Arkenstone is crucially important for the plot. It has become the centerpiece of why Thorin's plan to invade the Lonely Mountain isn't a dumb plan. Um, it is the answer to um, ha to the question of, you know, in the books, Thorin and the dwarves, when they arrive at the mountain, have no plan and look a little bit silly. Isn't that going to be really anticlimactic if that's how it happens in the film? Um, what are they going to do about that? Well, their answer is to have them not look silly and, uh, and, and totally incompetent, but instead have them have a plan, which, even if a little bit unlikely and which you know, has some flaws in it, is nevertheless a viable plan. Right. Um, and the Arkenstone is the centerpiece of that plan. So, and the whole purpose of achieving the Arkenstone is to unite the dwarves. So the Arkenstone as mechanism for uniting the dwarves is already there in the in the center of the story from Thorin's point of view. Anyway, um, 
So all it needs is one further step to say that the mechanism actually has some kind of power to, be, uh, to, to serve as the mechanism of uniting them, not just as a symbol under which, you know, a banner under which they will be united, but an actual mechanism for achieving the reunion of the dwarves. And that does not seem to me a big leap. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a big leap beyond what they've done. So, um, uh, so th that to me is the is the primary D answer that that I could easily see under those circumstances with the role that the Arkansas has been given. Um, you know, Jackson and 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 Boynes and Walsh saying, "Okay, we're justified in leaving the the Ravens aside." You know, Arkansas trumps Ravens. Um, so we're not going to do. We're we're going to we're going to relegate Roach to a purely cameo role. Um, I still think if there if we never see a Raven in film three, even like even briefly on screen like the Thrush, I'm going to be real. Surprised. Corey will file lawsuit. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm not threatening legal action, but uh, uh, but I am going to be very. I'm I'm going to be deeply nonplussed. You're going to be very stern in your review. I will. Podcast. I will. I will. <laughs> Let's just say that will be taken into account in my review. Boy, <laughs> I can tell you. Say, Dave. Um, so, Dave. Dave hasn't. Dave hasn't. Dave's been very quiet. You've not committed yourself, Dave. Oh, uh, I'm going with A. Oh. For the same sucky uppy. The same sucky uppy reason I am, or. <laughs> Because I really no, because I want Roak. This is a. Yeah. I'm going with the. I'm going with the emotional answer this time around. The. I want it to be that way, and I and I don't want to put myself in a position of rooting against myself. So. I, am, I, I actually am hoping that they do it. You know, I mean, I do hope. I mean, it'd be nice to have it. To have a raven, or even if the even if the thrush plate, because we've we've seen that the thrush can fly immense distances. You know, in very little time, so the thrush could even do it, especially if it had a little, you know, note attached to its leg. Yep. Yeah. Fear fire yeah. foes awake, come to Lonely Mountain. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, it it uh, it definitely um, it definitely could. Uh, that's right, Christopher. See, this is why we're not doing any of the Lego episodes or anything until the Riddle game ends. If there's a Lego Roak in one of the Lego kits for movie three, we're gonna know. I mean, it'll be a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be excellent. If there is a Lego Roak, uh, I I predict uh, unbridled gloating on my part. And we know uh, what you'll be getting as a gift for Miss Movie. <laughs> oh man, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't want to. I don't want to count my ravens or anything, but uh, <laughs> pretty sweet. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Noam uh, uh, makes a, a serious point, which I think is a really uh, good one. So, you know, if Thorin has the Arkenstone, um, that is to say, if if in order for the Arkenstone to be used to summon Dan, presumably Thorin would have to have it in his possession. That would mean that Bilbo would have to steal it from him. Uh, in order to give it to Bard, assuming that that happens, as I think we've all been assuming, that Bilbo is indeed going to hand over the Arkenstone to the enemy here. Um, yes, you know, but Noam, I think already, they by, by the role they've given the Arkenstone, they uh, are are putting Bilbo in a in a shadier 
position. I mean, I think that his position is much more morally ambivalent, um, and that therefore, the role that Bilbo plays in the book, I would actually almost characterize as parental. You know, the, the attitude that he has, the way in which he holds himself aloof from Thorin um, once they're in the mountain and the siege is going on, there is very, it, it, it feels like a parent to me. Like Bilbo is the dad who's being like, now you kids are just getting way out of control. I'm the only one here who's like, you know, sort of keeping his head and, and who, is, who is rising above all of this stuff. So I'm going to, for your own good, Thorin, I'm going to, I'm going to keep from you the thing that you say, you because I can see that it would be bad for you, right? That if I gave you the Arkansas, that's not going to do you any good. So I'm going to withhold it for your own good. Uh, and I'm going to, I mean, it, it, there's, there's a kind of, there's a position of moral superiority that Bilbo claims. Um, in holding the Arkenstone and in giving it away, that uh, um, that is, is 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 clearly is very important to the story. Um, that's going to be changed. That's already changed. Bilbo can't be thinking in just that way because it's not a question of, you know, now Thorin. Like, yes, I know you're obsessed about wanting the Arkenstone, but you know that's um, uh, that's really that's really not a very healthy attitude and uh, really you should be valuing your friends and, and being grateful to the people of Lake Town and everything. That should matter more than this gem, shouldn't it, Thorin? Um, that's not the issue anymore. Now it's, Bil if Bilbo withholds the Arkenstone, he is explicitly undermining the entire plan. Yep. Um, he is jeopardizing everything. So, so you know, known to me, if he if Thorin does get the Arkenstone and Bilbo has to actually steal it from him and take it away, that's only a small step further down this same road, I think. I, I don't think it puts Bilbo in a fundamentally different place. I think it's, um, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it, it merely exacerbates what already exists. Mm -hmm. um, so but I mean, we'll talk about that more. Uh, you know, we, we will have a Thief in the Dark episode. Um, later on, but uh, right. um, so obviously we will sort of work through that in more detail there. But I do, I, I, I agree with you, Noam, that 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 does seem to be the implication. If the Arkenstone is used in that way, one would think Thorin would have to hold it, and therefore Bilbo would have to steal it from him. Um, but uh, but I, to me, that's not necessarily an argument against it. I, I think that that would uh, that would be. Um, potentially really interesting, but okay. All so right. Let's see. We have seventy, so almost eighty percent have voted. If anybody else needs to get their vote in, do it soon. Oh, eighty that jumped to eighty-six percent. Oh, eighty-nine. Okay, yes, yeah, so we're getting final final votes. All right, we're about to close the poll. Remember, this is not binding. You know, you're going to be submitting your votes uh, still a couple months from now. You know, your final ballot. So there's lots of time to reconsider this. This is just uh, quick reactions from uh, from the audience. But if you adjust Noam, your answer, you know, we'll remember. Noam actually <laughs> asked that somebody else made this point too. That actually Bilbo didn't even know about the Arkenstone until they got into the mountain, and he certainly doesn't know. Although now he knows it's important to Thorin, he doesn't. I don't know that he really understands why it's important. Nobody. I don't think anybody really ever explained that to him. It's true. We, the audience, have learned about the Arkenstone. Yeah, I mean from Thranduil right. in Thranduil's conversation with Thorin, which was private. Bilbo wasn't there, right? Well, we don't know. Right. He was invisible. He might have been there. 
Um, oh, that's true. But it wasn't until old, I mean, a lot of it was said in old Bilbo's voiceover in the beginning of the first movie. Um, obviously, he knew he found out at some point because he right. read it into a red book. But right, right, yeah, but that doesn't show what Bilbo knows at the time. Right, right. Okay, so as we see, fifty-six uh, percent have voted for uh, Roach. Uh, that that's uh, <laughs> that's of course sensible. Our second leading candidate is E. None of the above. Though I have noticed we have not gotten very many E suggestions in the comments box. I noticed that as well. So we have a lot of people who think that it's not going to be one of these things, but who are uh, but have no idea what uh, it will be have no idea what it will be, um, which I'm not saying that's not a rational position to take, <laughs> as I certainly think we have plenty of reason to think that they're going to come up with ideas that we didn't anticipate, however. Um, um, Probably of all the ones we've asked so far, this is this is one that they could actually come up with something that we haven't. They'll be like, oh, we didn't think yeah. of that. Hang on. <laughs> Uh, Neil says the ring. Neil, are you thinking of the dwarven ring, or are you thinking of of Bilbo's ring, or the Lego ring? <laughs> <laughs> the dwarven ring. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting. Um, uh, I, I, I'm still. Well, we'll have to save this for another episode when we talk about um, other issues related to this again. But, uh, but uh, I expected there to be zero reference to the Dwarven Ring at any point um, in these films, and they have brought them up. Um, so That's I, right, I don't he brought know. it up. That was the other extended edition thing for movie one, wasn't yep. it? Yep, yeah. in Rivendell. Yeah, exactly. So the only thing that nobody believes is that nobody believes that a subset of dwarves will go fetch Dan. It looks like I did talk one person into the Arkenstone. Um, <laughs> so so that, that was not a complete waste of time. Uh, good, 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 good. Um, 16% have uh, voted for Dan and its people coming without summons. That is uh, the catastrophe answer. Um, uh, which, by the way, that, that to me, I didn't make this in advance, but that to me is the strongest argument for Dan and his people coming without summons, just that it would be more catastrophic. Um, yeah, right. That's true. Though, of course, with the initial threat of being discatastrophic, um, when it looks like they arrive just in time to start a war with the elves and the men, um, that it that would be actually kind of a really interesting usage of that in the film to have Dan and his people showing up in the nick of time look like a disaster. <laughs> Basically the one thing that will guarantee the worst possible outcome uh, from, uh, uh, from the Lonely Mountain showdown only to have it turn out to be a fortuitous thing when the goblins show up. But... Yeah, that's true. Maybe, yeah, I guess, and this is kind of the way things happen in the book. Maybe um, that, that it'll seem like they were coming to a peaceful resolution right up until the other dwarves show up, and then right, right. Or it'll be one of those, yeah, maybe as... it'll be one of those things where it's like they just about have the negotiations done, and then somebody gets an itchy uh, trigger finger and fires an arrow, and right, right, right. Or you know, like Dan showing up on a battle pig, you know, would do just as well, presumably. That's true. Um, that would upset people. Uh... Yeah, you'd think for various reasons, actually, you know, uh, uh, for aesthetic reasons, probably as, as much as anything else. Um, okay, okay. Um, oh, it looks like it looks like Luke is hatching a belated bee theory. Oh, let's hear it. Okay, 
Yeah, let's hear it, Luke. I, 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 that was the only one nobody voted for. So uh, I'd be very interested in B theories. Um, okay, um, we th we're very late today um, <laughs> because of my wanton disregard for Trisha's whip cracking. Um, so we should we should go. Uh, what's the uh, uh, will be. Our next show will be in two weeks again. What's our topic? What's our topic? Um, we're we're still doing? on the, the siege. Um, I can't remember if it's. Let me look real quick while, while we're talking. About yeah, is, is it the elven view or is it the human view? Yeah, That's what I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Let's see if I can get to it real quick here. Riddles in the dark. Somebody may have beat me. Beat me too okay, let's see. Luke's theory, Luke's B theory is that the Lake Town subgroup would break away to go for help. So we have Feely and Keely and Bofer and Owen. Um, decide to run off to the Iron Hills. That, look, that's a good theory. I like that theory. Um, because they might have a hard time getting to the mountain because the mountain is surrounded by hostile armies, um, but they can get away. And so they say, hey, I can think of something really useful we could do. Let's go find Dan in the Iron Hills. And then you get, like, Feely and Kiwi on Battle Pigs ah. flanking uh, 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 flanking Dan when he shows right, up. Right, right. Wow, that would be hey, even look, more that's upsetting. That's a great B theory. That's a great theory. That's a great B theory. Okay, so actually, I'm remembering now, Corey, that uh, we're doing the Siege Lake Town view. We have no Siege from the Elves' point of view episode. Oh, right, because we already talked. Because we already that. talked at length about the Elves. Plus, yeah. we'll probably talk about them a little bit in the Lake With Town. With the Lake Town view, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Certainly we still have a, we do have a third Siege. Our third Siege episode will be Thief in the Night. It'll be right. one after the Lake Town. Right, right. Okay, so we're doing we're doing um, bards. So more, um, if you find really upsetting the idea of uh, bards' beautiful daughters being cruelly slain in the uh, uh, destruction of Lake Town, uh, I will be sure to cheerfully revisit that troubling idea uh, in the next episode. So that'll be fun. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> Siege from Luke. Siege from Smalik's perspective. Through a lot of water. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, what, what would be really fascinating would be the siege of the Lonely Mountain uh, uh, from Smaug's point of view. But anyway, we'll we'll, we'll we'll yeah right. Talk about that later. Okay. All right. Um, well, that concludes episode six of season three. Um, Final uh, announcements before we go. I just wanted to to tell everyone I know that many of you are following along with the Mythgard Academy classes, um, and just to let you know that our the list of we're we're, we're electing the next two Mythgard Academy classes now. Um, that is the, uh, electing the subjects of the next two. Um, and can I just say this? They, they, I have have been having more fun doing Mythgard Academy classes than I even expected to be having. Um, I thought he was going to say than he has doing the Mythgard courses. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But I certainly have been. It has been. It has been fantastic. I've been having so much fun, and I find the more often the the more times we do this now, the more I have loved. Um, the sort of element of surprise, you know, I am not, I am totally not, I am, I've, I'm, I've kept myself completely out of the nominating and voting process. Um, so I just sit around and wait to be told what book we're going to, we're going to do next. And, uh, and it's fascinating and it's been really fun. Um, I, uh, I mean, I don't think I would have chosen Ender's Game, but that class has been 
awesome. I have I have loved what I have learned and discovered by uh, by teaching my way through Ender's Game and and, uh, and and really looking at that. That book has been a complete revelation to me. Um, so that it's uh, it's it's. It's a book that I thought fun, but I didn't have a, a, an enormous respect for until I actually worked it through in enough detail, you know, to actually prepare to teach it. And it's just been, it's been, it's been mind-boggling. It's been fantastic. Um, but um, anyway, so, uh, um, so we're, we're, we're doing, we, we, the one change in policy is we are electing the next two sessions because some of the, you know, the books like The Ender's Game is only six uh, episodes long, um, so we barely have time to begin the one before we have to start uh, voting for the next one. And also, I would like to have a little bit more lead time in case I, you know, I, I might want to try to arrange like a special guest or something like that. And if I only ever have like two weeks of lead time, it's kind of hard to arrange that kind of thing. So, um, so that was my suggestion that we kind of uh, start a little bit sooner and uh, vote for some further in advance. So that's why we're voting for two. Uh, moving moving forward, um, so we will see. Makes sense. Um, we will see what those will be moving forward. Uh, Noam has uh, made a piteous request that they be moved to a more reasonable hour. I know it's really hard on people in Europe, Noam. I have continual guilt uh, for <clears throat> having to do the Mythgard Academy classes um, in the uh, in the evening time. Um, the uh, the the reason for that is basically a combination of two things. Um, one is that still the majority, the significant majority of our students are still in America. So, you know, it's, it, is, it is in fact uh, inconvenient for fewer people. Um, for us to do it, in, for us to do it in the evening. If we did it during the daytime, which would be a, which would make like this, which would make it a sensible time uh, for Europeans. It's you know when all the when most of the Americans are working, and it's a, it's a, it's a hardship for even more people. That's one reason. The reason also why I why I do it, being committed to doing it in the evenings American time. Why I do it in the later evenings American time, um, is. To, like, that is why I start at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, um, which I know is even more cruel than starting at like 7 Eastern time, for instance, which would at least be midnight uh, <clears throat> and an hour when some people could be awake in Europe. Um, well, the, the two reasons for that are, first of all, West Coast people um, in America who, of course, have the opposite problem. Um, for them, the 9.30 classes are 6.30, so, you know, it's, people are at least beginning to get off work and stuff. Um, but then the other is just simply personal. 9.30 is after my kids are in bed, so it's a lot easier for me to really focus on stuff. Um, so anyway, that's... I, I know it's impossible to find a time that's going to be perfect for everybody, and I do try... I have, you know, I did in the Unfinished Tales class, and I'm doing one in the Ender's Game class that's in the afternoon. I do want to kind of mix it up, but um, uh, anyway, so I'm going to carry on feeling guilty about it, but there's not too <laughs> much else we can do <laughs> at this point. Um, well, I mean, the only, your only other option would be to do things at times that your family would have a big problem with, so. Yeah, that kind like of weekend, is that, you know, so. That is kind of the awkward position of the thing. Um, yeah, so anyway, but I, but you can at least know that uh, 
Exactly, Gerald. Just like Ender, I'll feel guilty about it, but I'll do it anyway. Yeah, I, I will. I'll do. I'll do what needs to be done, uh, and I'll do what I calculate will be the most effective thing, and then I will like uh, uh, have weeping episodes of self -lo self loathing afterwards. That's exactly, <laughs> precisely how it works. Um, yep, yep. Just like Ender. Um, uh, cool. So yeah, so we we should within the next uh, within the next uh, week or so by the next episode we should uh, we should have the uh, the topics of our next couple courses and of course Tolkien is back on the docket for next time. I I'm, I'm kind of assuming one of our next two works is going to be a Tolkien work. I know there was um, there's been uh, support for uh, for the Book of Lost Tales as a uh, as a starting point. P people wanted to do the uh, history of Middle Earth thing, which would be. So anyway, um, we'll see. We'll see. Um, this has been good, and I learned a lot about this part of the book. Thank you very much, Doctor. Oh, good, Robin. good, excellent. <laughs> Trish excellent. might even be we'll, able uh, to enjoy it now. That's right. That's <laughs> we'll right. teach you to enjoy. Uh, we'll teach you to enjoy a good enjoy northern little... battle scene next. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, the truth is, if I'm gonna, you know, be, you know, know a lot about Tolkien, I'm gonna have to at least get into the northern myth myths, which yeah. are very militaristic. So. You know, yeah. you know, speaking of which, just like as an aside, it's kind of surprising that no George R. R. Martin books have been nominated. That's interesting, right. actually. I don't think there's been a single nomination of a George R. R. Martin book yet. Well, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. We studied the first one in modern fantasy, huh. but... Yeah. Sure, I hadn't really thought of it, but yeah, I don't think Game of Thrones. I mean, I, I mean, I can't imagine somebody coming in and be like, "I nominate book five. Uh, so yeah. I, presumably, it would be Game of Thrones that would be nominated, but, um, but yeah, I don't think it has been. Huh. Interesting. Fine with me. Well, I know what I'll be nominating next time. <laughs> hey, I thought we were in a Dresden, uh, Dresden Thomas Covenant conspiracy. Yes, you're correct. That's what I will be nominating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom says we're waiting till he's done. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good plan. I've been enjoying the. Well, I, we should probably sign off. I was going to say I've, I've been enjoying the Larry Correa uh, trilogy uh, that takes place in an alternate 1920s, 30s time frame in the U.S. and how he how his interpretation of magic is because it's it's really struck me that you know like like Butcher and all these different people have different ways of sort of defining what magic is and where it comes from. It's really interesting. I recommend those if anybody's interested in reading something. Hmm. Um, that, if they're in between books and don't know what to read. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, I, I actually haven't read those. Yeah. Cool. Well, all right. you love them. You love them in Audible because Bronson Pinchot does the narration. Oh, really? He's awesome. Oh, cool. He's as cool. good, if not better, than James Marster. So. Really? Yeah, that's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty high standard. High praise. High praise. That is high praise. Okay, okay, well, have yes. completely gone off the rails in terms of topic here. <laughs> yeah. From from the whipcracker herself, I will yeah. <laughs> No problem. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening, and Godspeed.